inside the gold mine. Your guys, all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Charlie Bronson, unapproved <laughs> Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Good evening and welcome to what I believe is the sixth episode of the eighth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, the maven of sleaze and virago of vituperativeness, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tonight, when it comes to movie tough guys, Eastwood was your strong silent type, Stallone, your streetwise paisan, Schwarzenegger, your jokey bruiser, and Bronson, the hard-ass, vindictive son of a bitch nobody wanted to deal with, making his way up from decidedly humble roots in Pennsylvania coal mining, and a veteran of World War II, this unlikeliest of action heroes came to prominence well past accepted Hollywood vintage. His first notable ensemble roles came when he was in his 40s, and his earliest European headlining roles a decade after that, working his way through several major Western war and even a belated beatnik film with Liz Taylor, before finding success with a quartet of Euro crime pictures and a long, solid run of hardline American ones that stretched from 1972's Much Beloved The Mechanic straight through the dawn of the 90s. While his no-nonsense gruffness and a few major successes tend to pigeonhole him in the gritty revenge film getup, he still proved capable of many a stretch project, which resulted in his stony visage in everything from period dramas to contemporary spy films and even a neo-noir along the way. Equally beloved and reviled for his body of work during his lifetime, modern audiences tend to appreciate them for their grayness and uniformity of tone, with his long run as a pillar of the canon films line being the locus around which fans gravitate. So join us tonight as we load our piece and take on the scum that fills our streets with the grimmest of filmic Avengers, the one and only Charles Bronson, only here on Weird Scenes. Do you believe in Bronson? Because you're going to beat him. Like I said, I have Doc Savage with Mr. Lewis Paul. Hello, Lewis. Hello, everyone. Apologies beforehand for the slight hoarseness of my voice. I, I've been battling, I don't know, allergies, whatever. But uh, again, um, yeah, it kinda, it's fitting for the show, right? Exactly. So, yeah, Charles Bronson, beloved. He's one of a kind. That's for sure. Uh, we, and you know what? It's funny. He, he was only, it's funny, as people get older, they say, what do you mean only? But he was only 81 when he died in 2003. And yet he looked, uh, and I, I believe you will not disagree with me, he always looked older. This yes. man always looked older even when he was young lived in looks. Actually, my good friends growing up, their mother, bless her soul, Ruth, said that Charles Bronson used to babysit them when they grew up in Pennsylvania. Wow. So, you know, he, he, he grew he's, you know, the family's Lithuanian, Bronson. Mm-hmm. They were Puchinski. From what I'm seeing here, they grew up in Aaronfield, Pennsylvania. It's got to be deep in the boondocks. But yeah, she told me repeatedly, you know, Oh, you know, Charles Bronson, he used to babysit us when we were small children. I'm like, wow. The guy is an original. You know, it's just like a lot of people. Steve McQueen, who should be on our list one day. We're talking, unlike Paul Newman, Lee Marvin, who also should be on our list. I think we might have, I might have name dropped him one time. You know, there, there are certain actors that had a look, had a sound to their voice, and, and were pigeonholed. As a stereotype, and yet they got through that, past that, and in the case of the guy we're talking about today, he became a superstar. Not so much for action like we're associated with today. No. 
you know, like Uwe Ekwe and, and, and Scott Adkins and all these people. No, not so much action heroes. This guy was an actor who really tried hard. He, he, went, he came up like everybody else through TV, like David Carradine, another compadre of his during those years. And so I'm going to turn it back over to you, and then we're just going to bounce back and forth. One touch point that came up when you mm. mentioned that, a contemporary parallel, if you will, and it's still not perfect, Jean Reno, because that's mm. also a guy who's an actor and yet made his way up through, or got popular at least, through quote-unquote action films, but it's not really action. Chow Yun-Fat, another one. Not action in terms of being a fighter. It's more of like he's some old guy walking around with a gun, and he's gritty. But Bronson's in a league by himself, so those are just oh, yeah. vague Jean parallels. Reno. Yeah, I, I love Jean Reno, and I love Chow Yun-Fat. Jean Reno, actually, just to digress to a point, French actor who, thanks to Luc Besson, yeah, I know, problematic, but thanks to Luc Besson, a couple of films, Jean Reno became a worldwide phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, never able to sustain that. As for the other guy, you know, another problem, sustainability. Now, Bronson was able to build and sustain and lasted for decades mm-hmm. so some points that you actually touched on just to film out a little bit more like you said he was a Pachinsky and he's Lithuanian for years I always thought I, I think I took it from one of the films he was in I thought he was like half Mexican and half Polish <laughs> and that's actually one of his characters and I don't know what Dirty Dozen or something well it's funny because he has that look yes yes so I always assumed that but no, he's actually Lithuanian, 100%. 1921 he was born, before the freaking jazz age even started. And he died at 82, like I said. He was 68 when he filmed Kinjite, which is his last important film. It, it's unbelievable. You look at him, and he's like, okay, yeah, he always looked old. He always looked like he was at least in his 40s. Mm. But, you know, did he really look like he was 68? I don't know about that. You know, I would pick him maybe middle to late 50s, you know, a little bit, especially back in those days when everybody's kind of washed up anyway from drinking and whatever the hell else. He was one of 15 friggin' children. That's how big this family was in the uh, Pennsylvania Allegheny Mountains doing coal mining. This is why I think he looks sort of Mexican, maybe even vaguely Asiatic. He has Tatar roots or Tartar roots. Uh, so in other words, Genghis Khan, the Mongols. So there you go. Somewhere in there, that, that group that came into Russia, Lithuania, that whole area, you know, he's related to that. So if he looks a little bit Asian to you, a little bit Spanish or whatever, that's what it is. He's sort of oh, descended yeah, from Genghis Khan. Excellent point. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> no, no, it's a very, very good point because that explains that look that he has. Mm-hmm. And he had, yeah. And maybe also the toughness, who knows. <laughs> he didn't mm. learn to speak English until he was a teen. Before that, he was just speaking Lithuanian and Russian. So maybe that's part of his reticence, you know, that tough guy, man, a few words image. I mean, obviously he had no problem speaking the language, but perhaps that played into it. Yes. uh, Yeah, I commend you for that. Yes, very good. Yeah, I also saw that in my research, and I concur. I agree with you. I I, I think that not speaking English until he was older or much older than the norm for people in America carried over to his career as an actor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Here's the thing with Charles Bronson. You could watch this guy, and even 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 in shit movies, and even in his earlier Italian pictures, you look at him, and you know why people like Bronson? You look at him, and he's listening. Yes. He looks like he's listening before he acts. Yep. And, and you know, that's, to me, that's a really good sign of a good actor. 
yeah, he's not the crappy joke actor that everybody associates him with being. And he did become something of a type, there's no question. But if you watch his yes. earlier stuff, see him in something like The Sandpiper, like you said, there's something going on there. Actually, somebody, I think it was Melville or somebody, dropped by one of the sets of the, one of his early movies and says, this guy is a much better actor than you think he is. You know, he was blowing some better shit than this. So there's something going on there that maybe he kind of gave up and lost it. Maybe it's just playing in the background, and he's like, okay, this is what I'm typecast as, I'm doing what I'm doing. The reticence to speak and the stone-faced image and whatever else. But yet, he's not the schlub actor you think. He's not, and I hate to say it because we both love him, but he's not a Schwarzenegger. You know, he actually was an actor first. Also, uh, he shared an apartment in New York with Jack Klugman before he went to Hollywood, of all people. And he was the first guy in his family to graduate from high school. So he actually did wind up working in the coal mines, just kind of like a lot of people. You know, we talk about Connery did that. I know Tom Jones did that stuff. You know, it was common in those days to be stuck doing crap work like that. And apparently his family was super poor. And at one point, he didn't have clothes to go to school, so he had to wear one of his sister's dresses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so maybe there's a boy named Sue thing planned into this, too. Who knows? A lot of things that happen in childhood do kind of play out in your adulthood. Three interesting things that I found about uh, roles that he was looking at. Ingmar Bergman wanted to make a film with him. And he says, no, everything's weakness and sickness with Bergman, which is true. He was considered for Snake Plissken in Escape from New York. But John Carpenter thought he was too tough-looking and old for the part. And he also auditioned for Superman. But Ilya Salkin turned him down for being too earthy, which is true. He wouldn't have been a good Superman. Basically, the one other thing that I wanted to say before we get into it, he was, as you can probably tell from her being in like dozens of movies with him, married to Jill Ireland, who was British, from 1968 until she died in 1990, which is a pretty good stretch. And he actually met her, met her in 62 when she was married to the future Ilya Kuryak and Debbie McCallum. And supposedly, mm. and this may be apocryphal, but he told him, because he's working on the same movie with him, he says, I'm going to marry your wife. <laughs> and sure enough, he did. <laughs> I don't know how that played out, but nonetheless, it says a little, a little apocryphal thing about Charlie Bronson for you. He did a lot of stuff early on. I don't know that Kierdick really touched on too much of it. Big ones that I will... House of Wax in 1953. He was the guy who assisted Vincent Price. Four years later, five years later, he's in a bunch of films. Master of the World being one. Kid Galahad, which we talked about in our Elvis Presley movie where he was a boxer. Magnificent Seven is a big one for John Sturgis. He does The Dirty Dozen. Uh, which well, we talked I, about I want to talk about The Magnificent Seven. John Sturgis. Great film, classic film. Actually, one of my favorite 20 best movies of all time. I'll admit to that. And uh, I, I watch it at least once a year. Great cast, great direction. Many sequels never been equaled. <laughs> nice run. <Bronze, laughs> yeah, Bronze, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, who would have thunk it? Fucking Yul Brynner, this another Slavic guy, <laughs> old Slavic guy. Coming into town is Chris and, you know, Steve McQueen. It's like there's nearly a bad role in this film, except for we get to the lower parts. Yeah, the Spanish kid was pretty bad. Horst Burkholz, the German guy, is, is the Mexican. Yeah, but I, yeah, I, I liked Horst, so I kind of bought him as that. So so Charles Bronson was, was the guy recruited for this, and he was a loner. And these kids took to him. The Mexican kids took to him. It's a nice little part because he dies in the film and they kind of bury him. And, you know, it's like I think Sturgis recognized something very big in this actor because he cast him three years later in The Great Escape. Again, another great movie, another 
All right. I mean, you could say, I guess you could say, you know, the male testosterone film. This is based on actual truth, actual history, where American and, and British, primarily British, prisoners of war were kept by the Germans and they tried to tunnel their way out of this. Actually, they soft peddled the brutality on the German side in this film. Because, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot more uh, impetuous to to get the hell out of there. I was going to say, I didn't think it was as testosterone-filled as a lot of these war films are. It was actually a quiet film. I was surprised. It is a quiet film, but, I mean, look at that cast. Oh, the cast is amazing. And what really surprised me is, like you mentioned, a British character actress. Gordon, um, I forget his name, the Scotch guy who was the boss in, I think, The Professionals. He's in that thing. I'm like, and he's got a decent part. Bronson is definitely watchable as a fairly, it's hard to say major when you got this many people involved, but you notice him a lot. There's a claustrophobic. Yeah, he plays the claustrophobic tunneler. James Coburn, Steve McQueen again. It's really the Queen's film. Yeah, Pleasant. James Garner. Yeah, the funny thing is, James Garner is one of those guys who always plays James Garner. Uh, but he, he was he was okay in this. Yeah, Gordon Jenkins, Michael Gwynn, wherever he men, remembers from the Revenge of Frankenstein, he was in that. It was it was really good cast. It was a really good scripted film. I, the thing was, you know, it's also to this day, 1963 movie. To this day, it still bites you because it's it's one of those films out that. T- took chances back then. What movie kills off the majority of their cast before their three-hour... This is a three-hour movie, too. You know, another thing. Back in those days, they called them road shows. What that meant was when a movie's really long, folks, they did they did this thing called... I think it was called Entree, something. Like, they did a break, like 10 minutes. So you would go out, get your snacks, take a piss, come back, like chat. No, 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 no. And then they would come back. So the earliest DVD and Blu-rays that they kept that in, well, not for that length of time, but it was like end of part one, beginning of part two, because these movies were that long. Kudos, you know, I, I really liked this film. I thought Bronson was really good at this. I mean, he he's done TV. He he. We kind of like briefly, if we did. For two years, he was in Man with a Camera. He had a TV show. He's a detective, former combat photographer, freelancing in New York as, like, Man with a Camera. Uh, <laughs> you know, a, a little bit of, what's that guy, Ouija? Mm-hmm. The guy who used to photograph macabre scenes and a little bit of, like, you know, the things that were really popular at that time with TV, you know your detective shows, like the Darren McGavin thing and oh, a couple yeah. other things. I love that one, Mike Hammer. Mike Hammer. Yeah, it was a little bit of that. It lasted two years, though, so bless him. He did a lot of westerns, but again, he was like hovering a lot around TV. And then he did The Magnificent Seven. House of Wax was previous. Master of the World, he was actually the romantic lead, That's which the is funny because in Vincent Price's in House of Wax, Andre de Toth, Vincent Price was the villain, and he was like the supporting villain guy, sort of. Yeah, I was still doing westerns around time, but Master of the World, he's the romantic lead, which I thought was really interesting. Somebody in AIP decided to throw Bronson in that. But it wasn't until The Great Escape, but I think he even got pushed up bigger for a leader role. 
And then he was in The Sandpiper, which is another bit part, but it's an interesting one, where he is basically an atheist beatnik who goes up against uh, Richard Burton's crusty old reverend. Even though it's not a great film and it's kind of dated, a lot of the issues and a lot of the discussions that they have in here, particularly with the beatniks or hippies, wherever the hell they are, versus established society and bourgeois morality, are still being played out, and I'm hearing them almost every day today. So it's not as dated as you think in that respect. But, you know, it's it's watchable for what it is, and especially when Bronson's on screen as this artist, really just kind of sticking it to him all the time. A lot of people probably forgot. He's third build in this property is condemned. It's an Alley Wood film. It's one of those, like, gosh, who directed that? I don't want to say Sydney Nick Pollock. Rowe. Sidney Pollock. It's, it's one of these kind of heavy, yeah, Robert Redford and Alley Wood. One of these kind of heavy, you know, like, Ten years earlier was James Dean, so now it's Robert Redford. Really, these coming-of-age films, but taking place 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier. It's really like Steinbeck, as in John. You know, it's really like earthy kind of thing. It was written by Coppola, Francis Ford. I never liked this film, but I did want to say that Bronson's third building this fucking thing. All the posters have Bronson's name right after Redford, so he's already ascending. His role in this is very interesting. It's a depression era, southern thing going on. It's a film I never liked. Not that I didn't like Bronson. It's just, it's a weird kind of movie. How do you say? For me, I would say, you know, it's like from 59 to 64, some very good, talented directors and actors made some very strange, steeped in Americana movies, uh, built and or sold as romantic fables based on gothics or romances and these are really hard to watch today not because of bad because there's just something so off about them and and you know watching them today it's like what you know i'm thinking wtf what did audiences think about this back then you know you have big you know fucking robert reference been around for god knows how long the late Natalie Wood, you know, all these other people supporting cast, a lot of famous people. It's like, so they're going to, like, they're buying their popcorn, like, oh, my God, Mary Jell, what do you look at that? <laughs> uh, you know, it's just, it's very strange movies nowadays when you, you know, revisionist, you know. But back to you. Yeah, so Dirty Dozen, 67. Yeah, and we yeah. talked about this during our Donald Sutherland show. I used to really dig it. Nowadays, I'm like, you know, I prefer things like Kelly's Heroes or Escape to Athena or, you know, there's other war films that I much prefer to this one. It's not bad. It certainly picks up in the latter half when they finally do their raid on this uh, German fortress, if you will. It's not really a fortress. Shut up. It's such a big ensemble cast that, except for maybe Lee Marvin and one or two guys that are really in the front the whole time, not everybody really gets a chance to shine as far as I'm concerned. You thought differently. Oh, I, I have to say I disagree with you. I, I, I like those other films you name-checked and that we discussed in those other shows. Mm -hmm. But I, it's always been one of my favorites. It still is. It's a huge ensemble cast. Yes. Talk about male testosterone. I don't think there's a woman in here. <laughs> uh, no, there except for the, the, she gets stuck in the German Chateau, right? Oh, wait, there's uh, there's also the scene with the British prostitutes. They get in trouble for that. Grimey! <laughs> He's dirty! 
And then Lee goes, yeah, he's dirty, but he's got a job to do, whatever the one is. You know? <laughs> yeah, she does say, blimey, he's dirty, I think. <laughs> oh, no, blimey, he's filthy, you know, or, or they're filthy. Great, great cast. Brunson's really good. He stands out in this. I thought he's a, he's a brick. He's a slug. Oh, this is the thing. He may have been demoted because he shot his superior. And then when Lee Marvin and him, he goes, he was going over the hill. And then he's the one guy that Lee Marvin says, you let somebody see you do it. And so, you know, he's like one of the few guys that's in the Dirty Dozen that actually probably didn't belong in there. But, you know, like his superior was deserting his men, so he killed him. And actually, truth be told, he is one of the three fucking people to survive that movie, which is amazing. Another Wow, 1967. Let's kill off half the most of the cast. Yeah, more than half. <laughs> more than half. Let's kill off like three quarters three of dozen them. plus Maybe more. like three or four guys. <laughs> let's let's kill off 16 people. <laughs> I don't know how would audiences take to a movie like that when like, hey, we got a great cast of like 42 named actors. We're gonna end up with three. What? <laughs> oh fuck. Come on, if, if somebody had to be escorted out of the theater for Endgame, how the hell are they going to take a film like that? Can you picture it? <laughs> Endgame? You mean the George Eastman Endgame? No, the Stupid Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> Some geek, actually, and it was local, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. He got escorted nope, out of the several. theater. There were several. There were several. <laughs> I can could, I could understand. Like, you know, my fucking Iron Man's death was, took people pretty hard. <laughs> You knew what was going to happen. Come on. I figured they were all going to go because the contacts were up. Don't bring it up, man. (laughs) Do we need to escort you out of the theater? It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, that was a good movie. Anyway, all right. But anyway, so here he's doing all these parts. Okay, some of them are more glorified, but they're essentially still bit parts, ensemble parts, whatever. All of a sudden, he goes over to Europe. And he does a film which, actually kind of strangely considering the film itself, is the one that breaks him. Moves him from a stateside supporting actor at best to a much-beloved leading man in Europe, which then led to him getting the same treatment back home and becoming the Bronson that we all know. It's just Farewell My Friend, or Farewell Friend, or whatever you want to call it. Much rumored about for his alleged criminal ties, Alain Delon is the star here, and also uh, father of Nico's son, uh, but he, he denies that, of course, <laughs> as one of a pair of army buddies who killed a stunning girl's boyfriend during Operation Algeria. For some asinine reason, he thinks this indebts him to get involved in a weird semi-heist operation alongside a female friend of hers. Bronson gets wind of the situation and wants a piece of the real action. There's a lot of money involved. The guys get trapped in an airtight safe, and it turns out no one's surprised that Delon's just a fall guy for a pair of lesbians who just invented the perfect setup. The girls are gorgeous. Delon actually requested Bronson for the role, and it's not bad for a Eurocrime film, but it's a tad dry. There's a lot of dreary office building sets, a very late 60s television feel a la Mission Impossible, which we covered in a prior show. And, you know, really, unless you're there for this homoerotic angle, see these two guys, you know, strip off their shirts and be all sweaty in a safe. <laughs> There's really nothing much to it. It's okay, but it's not. I can't see how it broke him, but it did. Oh, I always liked this movie. And, uh, yeah, Bear Trusted Delone and Bear Trusted Bronzeman. Hey, you want to get the butter out? <laughs> but, <laughs> well, we got to we gotta satisfy everybody in our audience. That's it. <laughs> uh, uh, this is like a lube-thrilled lube movie. I mean, you know... <laughs> No, seriously, Delon, Delon is not peaking yet, but he's certainly at the early popularity phase of his career. So, yeah, he requested Bronson, which is really interesting. And so Bronson plays this in a very peculiar manner. He plays it very aloof. He plays it very... 
how do I say? He plays it very like alienating. He's alienating the well, it's probably as written. He's alienating the guy he's working with. He's alien. He's probably alienating Delone by working this way. He's alienating the audience just by being a dick. You know, just really supreme dick. But as time goes on, they're locked in his vault. There's things that show you how good Bronson is. Not when they're bare-chested and sweating, but that's pretty hot. <laughs> no, but it's it's. Um, he wants me to spit that out. There, <laughs> Don't spit out your wine, man. Spit it somewhere else. There's lube, but um, <laughs> but no, it's it's it, it, you know it, as as time goes on, there's that that sort of breaking down of the walls. I think the director, I think it was Renee Clement, was trying to get at. It's a very good movie. It's it's one that I do watch probably less than I should, but there, there's every every two years I go back and rewatch this because I really like this. The funny thing about this is, like, where's a really good print of this? Because I saw well, I saw it in French with subs, and I saw it in English, and there's always one longer, one shorter. And, like, this is – but, you know, the way Shout Factory and, and Scream is going lately, they're going to probably put it out. Because suddenly, I don't know if you noticed, the last six months to a year, all this shit that we threw out our VHS and going, it'll come out, and it never did, is suddenly coming out. Yeah, Wild East put out a decent double feature of that and a film that I'm about to discuss in a minute, and the, I don't think the print's that bad there, but one of both of them actually just came out from Shell Factory, like you said, I forget which one, so it may actually be Farewell Friend, is now on Blue, so <laughs> keep an eye out for oh, it if you're interested. There you go. <laughs> and that's really recent, we're talking about, I just read about it, you know, a week ago. So it's 68 and 69, he throws in a couple of more things, he does a couple of westerns, a couple of war films, the only one that I would think was worth discussing there is Once Upon a Time in the West which is uh, Sergio Leone's famous film I don't want to get into it too much Leone is a show in himself but it, I liked it a lot more than The Good, The Bad and The Ugly let's put it that way or A Fistful of Dynamite but it's very very long and I think that's part of the problem and the other problem for me and I know a lot of people think that's a great thing Henry Fonda I really I, I don't know I never could deal with Henry Fonda I'm sorry you couldn't buy him as a villain? No? Yeah, well I won't say I couldn't buy him as the villain it's just I don't all right. It's not a personal thing. It's not like I can't stand this guy, but I never like him in his roles. The only time I was even close to accepting him, if you will, like, okay, I feel sorry for this guy, was in The Wrong Man, the one that Hitchcock did. I just don't like him on film. And this is one of those times. What I did like is, who was it, Claudia Cardinale, who is gorgeous in this thing, of course, and Charles Bronson as Harmonica, because He's got some beautiful things. There's one sequence I always remember where there is this deserted train station that has, it's like a giant barn that has all uh, the sky coming through on every side because the slats are all falling apart or whatever and there's pigeons roosting in there and every damn thing. And Bronson's there sitting on like a hay pile or some shit. This planner's harmonica. And I don't know, something about that, some scenes like that, there's other ones, really stand out and make the film for me. But, you know, if you're going to put it up against the first two Man With No Name films, eh, it, it's not, oh, look, this is his greatest film. Like was here. No, I don't think so at all. I think those two are, especially the second one. But it's a very good film, and at some point, maybe we'll talk Leone films, because they're definitely worth giving much more discussion than this cursory little reading here. <laughs> I, I agree. We, we we don't want to spend a lot of time in this. We have a lot to to chow Exactly. Down. Yeah. But it's one of my favorite films of all time. Really. He's really good. He's surprisingly good. I think he wasn't 
certainly on his choice, no. but I think they went with him. He really excels in a part which has pretty much minimal dialogue. Mm-hmm. The real star of this movie is Jason Robards, who blows me away every time I see this movie. As for Henry Fonda, what a slimy fucking villain this exactly. guy Exactly. Yeah, he's disgusting. He's a disgusting villain. He does things. He rapes a woman. He, he forces this paralyzed guy. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 he's bad. It's probably one of the best Henry Vonda performances I've ever seen. <laughs> and why he would do this at this point in his career, I have no idea. Yeah, All-American, Midwestern, whatever the hell. Yeah. Disapproves yeah. of his son's career and everything, and there he is doing this. Like, really? <laughs> yeah, it's just totally like, wow. Y'all, uh, seriously, folks, like, you, you, you were like, yeah, I heard this before. No, really. If you never can imagine... Mr. All-America, Henry Fonda, playing a, a shoe-polished black, slick-back-here, fucking piece-of-shit villain. This is the movie. Bronson is very good. Um, I, I, one of my favorite films of all time. I, 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 can't, I can't say anything more. But visually stunning. Are visually stunning. Oh, my God. Yeah, certainly. But then there's an odd movie that, that 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 comes up like two years later. You know what it is. Right? I think so. Yeah. So uh, what I'm going to is Rider on the Rain, which is oh, see, that's not the one. Okay, which one are you thinking of? You can't win them all. Ah, okay, go ahead. <laughs> War so film. Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis, who just came off of <sighs> Boston Strangler, career changer. Y'all, this fucking guy, you know, talk about, like like I just said with Henry Fonda, Tony Curtis, everybody laughed at this guy for years. Phenomenal as the Boston Strangler. Career resurgence. Now Bronson's starting to be well-known more than ever. So they put him in this jokey Italian-Turkish-U.S. co-production <laughs> called You Can't Win Them All, about two adventurers who can't get along that are on the high seas. And it's like, what a mess. Yep. <laughs> um it's high-budgeted. There's beautiful people in it. Both these guys are bare-chested. Get the loop. But it just didn't really do for anybody what they, I guess, what they assumed they wanted to do. And before we get to Ryder in the Rain, did you want to discuss Lola? or do you want Not to good if you want to. Lola's a strange freaking movie. I think Bronson at some point said, let me try something different. It's a French movie. He plays a middle-aged man about his age at the time who falls in love with a young lady. We're talking pre-20 years old. And it's almost like they're going to leave where they are because of everybody's perception of a older man and a younger woman. This is not even Lolita type. She's much younger. Ooh. And they go to another country to get married. And, of course, Lola realizes, well, he is older than me. It's a very strange movie, very strange part he brunson i give him props for trying to do something different it just all falls in that very at that time very french kind of period where french filmmakers get things like this made oh and maybe this is where the term came from those of you who were uh, taking up your suggestion earlier about lubing up for all these guys with their shirts off might enjoy the other title of this movie, which is Twinkie. Yes, this is where yes. they got the twink from. <laughs> so go ahead. Yeah, Lola, Lola uh, um, because Lola's played by Susan George. Yes, Twinkie was one of the, you know, twink, right? 
Uh, Susan George, a very young Susan George, is a 16-year-old girl, 16-year-old woman, uh, whatever, <laughs> falls in love with. Um, and, you know, the cast in this thing is really, really, if you watch a lot of British films of this time period, Robert Morley, Lionel Jeffries, Jack Hawkins, Michael Craig, Honor Blackman, your favorite, um, Sue Ann Lloyd. Uh, Orson Bean. Yeah, I remember Orson Bean. I love Sue Lloyd. Oh, so here's the thing. Where did they move to? They moved to America. <laughs> wow, that was a mistake. <laughs> um, to France or something. Anyway, so Twinkie, that's the character's name. Her name is Lola. Actually, her name is Sybil. Lola Twinkie. <laughs> she she has multiple personality disorders. <laughs> Um, anyway, she leaves him a letter at the end, a very tearful letter. He starts crying. It's a very weird movie. But it kind of leads you to the one you want to discuss, yeah. which is Rider in the Rider Rain. In the Rain. Which, again, this may be one of the ones that's out from Shout. I don't remember, because both of them are on a while, these DVDs, so I can care less. It's a fascinating Jalo crime hybrid from when they come on. Marlene Jobert is the lead. She's a disturbed woman who comes home on a rainy night and keeps seeing the same weird-looking guy wherever she goes. Of course, he tails it to her house and, completely with stocking over his face, tries to rape her, which means that she's going to kill him and dump the body over a cliff. Shortly thereafter, she starts getting tailed by Bronson, who turns out to be military intelligence, or so he says. He thinks she and the guy he killed were in on some kind of drug deal, and it turns out that the murder victim left behind a bag full of money. But even that isn't quite what it seems, or is it? He turns out to be lying to her as well, which puts her in some dire straits, with other seedy characters also looking for the same guy, the money, or something. In the end, Bronson opens the entire story as we knew it or figured it to be. Is he the good guy? Is he the bad guy? Is he just an opportunist? It's never really made clear. And the Euro Lounge score from Frances Lai, who did a lot of the Emmanuel films, the use of her rather confused viewpoint throughout, and much of the filming style in the presence of none other than Laura Gemser's husband and ubiquitous star of such things, Gabriel Tinti, leaves this one much closer to a straight-up jowl than it ever gets to crime, heist, or espionage, none of which really describe or encompass the film's style and tone in the least. So it's a strange film. I do enjoy it, though. I'm not a big fan of this movie, but, <laughs> you know, I don't want to sound like I was a big fan of Lola either. I'm not. <laughs> but I wanted to mention Lola. I didn't like either one of these two films. I, I saw her both recently for the show, and I was like, he's good, but I'm not a fan of these movies. I, I just found them alienating for one yeah. reason or another. They're strange. There's no question strange. And that's why I'm shocked this is the stuff that broke him. But anyway. It is. It is, yes. So next up, he goes to one that I can understand breaking in, Violent City. Yes. Soji Solomon, who is famous for a lot of westerns and Placitachi, a crime film that attempts to out-bullet-bullet bullet with a long, long and crazy car chase scene through a tight alleyway, stairwells, and mountainsides of some resort island, and that's just the first ten minutes. Solomon, mostly known for spaghetti westerns with Tomas Millian, but would later hit the bullseye with a fantastic revolver with a crazed Oliver Reed, which is where we discussed it last during that show, and Fabio Testi. This one's nowhere near that level of tension and success, but it was co-written by the woman behind one of my all-time favorite foreign films, Swept Away. That's right, Lena Vertmuller was in on this one. Bronson is a hitman from mobster Telly Savalas, who gets set up and jailed, with his girl Jill Ireland passed around from one guy to the next like a football trophy, even after he gets out and starts bumping off his enemies. In a lot of ways, it's very much a modern-day take on a spaghetti western and all about revenge. There's not a lot to the film script-wise, and both my wife and a fellow Bronson fan found it intolerably slow 
and literally sleep-inducing for both of them during an airing about a decade back. But I always really liked it, and the visuals are often dazzling. The hit at the track, the car chase, the local flair, the interiors, the set design like Kelly's Place, that silent hit sequence in the exterior elevator that closes the film. It's a good one for sure, particularly if you dig Felicia Teshi and if you dig Bronson. I like it a lot. What's your take? Oh, it's a it's an enjoyable film for those people who really like this thing. Telly Sabalas is the crime boss. He did this he did this role in a few Italian pictures, not a lot actually, less than you think. But there was the one with uh, was, I can't remember. Just called Boss or something. I mean, there was like three of yeah, them. Yeah, the right? Big Boss or something. There was the one with uh, Yul Brenner, wasn't he the crime boss in that one too? No, it was, it was I can't remember. Oh, Antonio Sabata, whatever film that was. It was Antonio Sabata and Talisuelos. Very similar actually to this film. Yeah, Bronson's good, but it broke him big. This and, and the, another movie around the same time. So next up is another one, Cold Sweat. It's a dry Euro crime from Terence Young. Bronson's part of a group of army guys who wound up in prison, but who he ran off on when they shot a local cop during an escape attempt. Ever since, he's been living under an assumed name in the south of France, married to Bergman's favorite girl, Lee Allman, and bumming around renting boats. Of course, the guys, one of whom was a perfectly horrid James Mason, failing miserably at some sort of a southern hillbilly accent. You have to hear this to believe it. Catch up with him, pull a home invasion, and hold his wife and kid hostage. Part of the deal they make is that he play courier to this hippie drug mule, his longtime wife Jill Ireland, but he stashes her away and tries to use her as a trade. Of course, there's a bunch of twists and turns. Folks escape, they get recaptured, there's a big car chase down the side of the French Alps, and it all works out in the end. I understand this one recently got the blue treatment as well, but for years it was only available on this awful gray market DVD from 905 Films, which is worse than EP Speed VHS. It's muddy, it's filled with instances of ghosting, so beware, don't get snuckered like I did the film itself. It's okay, but it's not that great a film in the first place unless you're a completist. No, it's not that great a film. I always wondered why a lot of people refer to it. Maybe they were mis... No, <laughs> maybe they were misremembering it... Um, or something, I don't know. Uh, he did He did two pictures. One I really want to discuss, but I'm going to see where you want to go next. Okay, so he does Someone Behind the Door, which is another one of these jobs. And then Red Sun, which I was not able to see recently. I, I haven't had it since the VHS days. But I used to like it a lot. Toshiro Mifune is actually a literal samurai in the American West. And, of course, he gives him a deal. There's another one like this, too. Um, I forget. It, it was actually a kung fu film. They had, like, a, a Chinese chop sake guy. In this case, he's actually transporting the samurai after they have a little fight across the desert. Well, well he's in this with Elaine Delon, too. So it's a bit of a, a reunion for those two guys. And Ursula Andrus. And Ursula Andrus. <laughs> Ursula. Anything you want to say about this one? Because I'm remembering from like, I don't know. What, no, it's, it's, it's fun. It's a bit dry. You know, it's funny. Terrence Young did a couple of Bond movies. Uh, then he did a lot of weird shit. And this is, this is in the weird shit pile because it's a very strange... This is around that uh, Stranger and a Gunfighter, uh, Low Lay and uh, Lee Van Cleef. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, yes. this is around that time period. Probably there's a one, there's a black exploitation one too. There's there's a lot of uh, this time period westerns starting to get. Uh, they got a little bit of a bump because the spaghetti westerns were popular. Yeah, a little bit of a bump, but it was the end of that genre you know it was the waning years you know next up is two that i have never seen one of which you really praise so you probably want to talk to it mm. the Veloci papers another terence young and chato's land which is a michael winner yeah. 
Oh, yeah, the Valachi papers. I'm sorry you never got a chance to see that. It was uh, a video on demand, and then I think Oliver, somebody put out a Blu-ray, very limited edition. We, I've mentioned my peculance with limited edition Blu-rays. It's like, you make them very expensive, and you only print out 300 of these. Fuck you. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, adapted from the book by Pete, New York journalist. It's a story about Joe Valachi, uh, one of the big mafia informants in the early 60s to late 60s, who actually was involved in federal prosecution against the mafia. This is directed by Terrence Young, again, who I just said did a lot of shit. This is like a really good movie. I, uh, it's long. This is filled with a lot of really good people. I mean, you got Lito Ventura, Walter Chiari, Joseph Wiseman, Fausto Tozzi, a lot of good people who we've seen in multitude of Italian crime films. Speaking in English, it was filmed in English. Jill Ireland's in this. Uh, it's 125 minutes. Sometimes feels longer. There was a 140-something minute cut of this. I recall seeing at one time. Bronson's really good. He. The problem is they had to de-age him to play the post-teen character, and then they had to, Joe Valachi, then they had to age him as he plays senior citizen Joe Valachi, which is something I think is is delaying the Scorsese movie about uh, featuring uh, Robert De Niro, the Irishman, uh, which is a really good book. It's like, how do you, how do you get an actor, and this is pre-CGI, pre-viz, so like how you, you know, with, with, with minimal makeup, how do you age an actor? Is already... Let's say you're approaching mid-30s to around 40 to play someone in their 20s. You know, it's difficult. And then also have that person play in the 60s. Yeah, so very good movie. Uh, it's a brutal film. There's castration. There is some vicious shit in this movie. I think Bronson's really good. I think it's one of his 10 best performances on film. Really good. Shame you never saw it. But you... And others should make the chance if you get it. Michael Winner, who would go on to great fame with Charles Bronson soon, directed Cato's Land, or Chato's Land, depends on how you pronounce it, with our buddy Jack Palance. Bronson, of course, is a half-Apache guy, drinks, bartenders ignore him, you know, the usual racism and bullshit. This has a odd kind of TV-esque supporting cast. we got James Whitmore, Simon Oakland, Richard Basehart. Yes, that Richard Basehart, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Ralph Waite, Richard Jordan, Victor French, all your TV guys are in this. As Cato takes revenge for against the white man. It's a kind of like stealing the land back kind of thing, taking revenge. Before we went on to the big movie. Yeah, now here's where Bronson becomes the guy you all know and love, or hate, or whatever the case may be. Uh, presumably if you listen to the show, you love him. 1972. Bronson returns from Europe. He's already riding high in his first film with Michael Winner, so here comes the second. At first, it seems like Violent City Mark II, with a long, silent sequence where he sets up a hidey hole across from his curtain Mark's dive apartment, cases the place out, before setting up an elaborate firebomb situation in his place. But it fails to go off his plan, so he gives a little manual assistance with a well-placed bullet. Yes, we're talking about the mechanic. But then things change radically when you follow Bronson as the esthete of a hitman who has refined taste and a killer spread, but who's so emotionally bereft, he pays a hooker, once again, Jill Ireland, to read love letters and pretend she's his girlfriend. 
After he does a hit on his former boss, crusty old Keenan, how Satan win, he's bemused enough to take on a protege, Wins obnoxious son, Jan Michael Vincent. The thematic doubling even starts with the casting. If you didn't notice, the two look strangely alike facially. Things seem to be going well, and they do start to develop some sort of an ersatz relationship, which in itself puts Bronson on the outs with his mob bosses, and winds up being his downfall as the homoerotic Oedipal scenario plays out. It would have been a really grim ending if it weren't for Bronson's preparing for even this contingency. What a great fucking film. It's a lot shorter than I remember it being, and after all these Italian and French jobs, the American style tends to fall a bit flat and come off a little overly obvious, with entire swaths feeling somewhat telegraphed where they're meant to be unexpected twists. But it's still, it's a classic of guys' film for a reason. I've actually never met or spoken to a guy who didn't spontaneously bring this one up when Bronson's name was mentioned, even if they hated all his other work. It was like, oh, yeah, the mechanic. So, yeah, it's, that says something. It's a really good film. Yeah, I like this movie. It's funny, you know, uh, Jason Statham, who, who I speak highly of on our shows, did a, re- <laughs> did a remake of this, which actually wasn't bad. Unfortunately, he did a sequel to that, which was kind of whack, but very entertaining. So, the mechanic, you know, what can you really say about this? You know, homoeroticism in action movies really, I don't know. It happens a lot. <laughs> it happens a lot. And, and you know what? I get it. It's like watching a football game and you listen to the color men. My wife watches a lot of Canadian football, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there and I just start laughing at the comments these guys throw out. And she's like, what? I'm like, you didn't hear that? That's the gayest freaking line I've ever heard in my life. And they're talking about some play or something somebody did. I mean, the way that they phrase things. My father, once upon a time, he was like, you know, the football player and shit back when he was in high school. And he's like, yeah, I bet you think all those big macho football players, when they smack each other in the ass with a towel in the shower, that they're all gay. I'm like, you yeah, know, well, that's kind of pushing it. <laughs> so, I well, mean. Uh, yeah, I mean, I won't, I, I won't go to the deep psychological things. So. <laughs> Sports, baseball, getting soccer, together. <laughs> football, and bisexuality. I'm not going to go into these things. Uh-huh. But Jan Michael, he's like, ah, but Jan Michael. Vincent. Sweaty men on top of each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. I once worked with a guy who was like, you like Turkish wrestlers? <laughs> I'm like, no, he was, he was gay. He actually was on the Lion King on Broadway. Mm-hmm. This is before then I was like no 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 I don't like Turkish wrestlers I know you do <laughs> he said, I go to this bar off Broadway there's a lot of Turkish guys there I'm like good <laughs> I'll meet you later <laughs> do they all have those Freddie Mercury mustaches <laughs> yeah I saw that finally oh boy um, <laughs> you know <laughs> I have to disagree with you about that. You I liked it? Oh, my God. <laughs> I thought he was good. No, you know what I had an issue with? His hillbilly teeth? <laughs> no, no. The makeup is, is, is uh, what's the word? What's the word I'm searching for? It's uneven. Like Those teeth are unbelievable. Oh, I, have a, I have a problem with my teeth. Get the well, hell well, out no, of here. <laughs> sometimes they're so pronounced, and sometimes they are pronounced, which is the way Freddie was. And sometimes it was like, what was going on here? But you know what? The movie was shot by two different directors also, so it probably had two different crews. But, you know, all in all, wasn't too bad. But let's get back to the mechanic. So homoeroticism, bisexuality, all these things are under the carpet in this movie. Now, 
You know what's striking about this film? The fact that it's edible homoeroticism? <laughs> no, the fact the that sun. there's 15, maybe 10 to 15 minutes, there's no dialogue in yes. the beginning. Oh, that's great. That's the best part. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild. It's almost like... It's it's problem was, yes, it's, but it's almost like, in a way... The problem was, I, I always have with this movie that Michael Winter, who is cinematic at times as a director, I found a problem with him with this movie because it's very TV-ish yeah, that's uh, true. cinematically. I mean, I, I haven't researched Winter that much to look into whether he was actually working in television, British or American at this time period. But it's a very TV-looking movie. There's a big fucking weird thing that happens in this picture. Do you know what that is? What are you thinking of? I'm thinking of, so there's a girl that Jan Michael Vincent bangs, mm-hmm. and uh, she's like a hippie chick, and she's a bisexual hippie chick. She has psychological problems. So Bronson goes along to, you know, visit her. He says, I want to check up on this girl. So she's like, I'm going to kill myself. So she cuts her fucking wrist, and they leave, you know? And my thing was, all right, you guys are big guys. And you guys are in your thing, and you're, you're, we don't know where your mind is. We never really get to the minds of these people. And uh, that's a thing. The remake with Statham actually tries to do a little bit more with that, but pretty much is very close to this film. I recommend that. But the, I didn't like that these both these guys walk out and the girl dying. Well, I'll say this: you don't want to get inside their mind because that's part of these supposed twists and turns. Yeah. The whole thing is there—you can't tell where they're at, or you're not supposed to tell where they're at. But uh, the the Oedipal homoeroticism is really odd. It becomes like uh, George Michael there with father figure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a very good movie. It's actually probably, and we're beginning to see the understated Bronson persona come full mm-hmm. forth with this too. The, uh, which which he would change up, you know, what movies to be discussed. Oh, my God, this is going to be a long show. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, what note does it end up on? It literally ends up on a note. Good film. Yep. So next up, The Stone Killer. It's mm-hmm. actually the third film with Michael Winner, and already we're closing in on Death Wish territory. In fact, if Bronson ever made a Dirty Harry film, this is it. Bronson is an over-aggressive New York cop whose manner of getting results pisses off eternal affairs and the media, so he gets booted from the force locally, but with an offer to take more or less the same job out in L.A. Okay, of course, it's the same shit, different coast, just with more hippies, drugs, and rioting in the streets, and Mr. Roper, Norman Fell, is his boss. Want to make that even funnier? Jack Tripper has a part, a bit part, as one of the cops. That's right, Fell and John Ritter both star in this one, only a few years before Three's Company. Too bad they can't bring much life to it. It's not terrible. He got a weird score that veers from Mission Impossible tension cues to Anderson Tape's electronic blurps and bloops, Martin Balson doing his Eurocrime mob boss shtick, the mob is using non-family Vietnam vets as cleanup men, that's what the title refers to, and it may at a stretch appear to diehard fans of the Death Wish and Dirty Harry series, but it comes off, like you mentioned, TV-ish. It comes off feeling a bit too Kojak, with all the depressing chatter and a very television movie feel. On the surface, it's acceptable enough, but something about it just doesn't work. This one was unavailable domestically forever for some reason. And while it's hardly top-tier Bronson, giving some of the later career misfires that are, it doesn't make any sense as to why. 
I have it on a really nice quality UK budget DVD. Apparently they recently put it out on a Blu-ray triple feature domestically with other even lesser films from his Ove. So now you can finally see this thing. And it is worth a watch, but again, not one of his greats. Actually, I got this along with the Veloci papers. One of all of... You know, I, guys, I'm not pushing these guys. They, they very rarely do anything. But uh, like once a year, they put out like six movies and... And last year, uh, it was this and the Veloci Papers. I don't know why. Uh, they both have um, commentary. Are you spritzing? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh. They both have commentary or liner notes by Paul Talbot, who I wanted to name check, actually. He's a guy. I found him on Facebook. He's a big Bronson fan. He's written two pseudo-biographies of Bronson, uh, one about Bronson's earlier films and one about Bronson's later films. I have issues with both, but they're they're very good books. I think they're books on demand or whatever. You can find them on Amazon, Paul Tablet. Nice guy. He he really is a, a Bronson guy, so he knows a lot about him. I think he mentioned that these things were coming out. And I think they're gone. You know, like again, it's like that thing like you print five hundred, a thousand, two hundred, whatever, you know. And then you go back later, like two hundred and forty dollars. Ooh. Now, of course, I go to sell them on eBay. Nobody's interested, but that's another <laughs> story. I wouldn't sell this actually. Yeah, again, it's a TV-ish looking movie. You got a strange cast, lots of TV people. Stuart Margolin, a familiar face from the mid seventies, is in this. Actually, a character actor I enjoyed. Martin Balsam. Now you mentioned his Italian pictures. You know, it's funny. Martin Balsam's uh, site. He was in. Hitchcock Psycho, lots of TV work. God knows, lots of TV work. Lots of feature films. He was a peculiar type, you know? He was a type. Character actor who was a type. And when he played Mafia guys, so the thing with Martin Balsam did that irritated the fuck out of me <laughs> is he would shout. Yes. And Henry Silva did this, too, when Henry worked in Italy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Henry would shout. You know, Henry was... I told you, you know, and so Martin Balsam's thing with this Jewish kind of tinged <laughs> voice. I told you, you know, it's 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 very interesting. Actually, I would get more scared of Martin, yeah, than Henry, because Henry looked like a fucking psycho, so you don't want to piss him off. Martin looked like the nice guy next door, and when he got mad, you were in trouble. That's always the way. It's the quiet ones. Yeah. So it's those little ones. Yeah. So Mark Balsam, Mafia Don in this. Yeah. As you said, another Michael Winter film. Although this looks different from a lot of the other Michael Winter films. I'm not sure what it was. It was like they were trying to achieve a sort of uh, synthesis between, ooh, we're smart in this show, huh? <laughs> between, between popular TV cop shows of this time period. And feature films, mm-hmm. y'all, that were, you know, remember, Serpico's big now, Super Cops is big now. Mm-hmm. These, things just, right, these things are just becoming, forget about the Policia Teske, which is a bit of a 42nd Street Grindhouse thing. It's, you know, it was big, but it wasn't big to, like, America. mass audiences. Yeah. Right. So I think taking account of the success of that overseas, now it was big overseas, that stuff, but not here. So I think trying to synthesize all these things, I think it has a really different kind of look. Is it wholly successful? No. But at the same time, it's odd. And you mentioned the music. 
which you didn't dig. It's Roy Budd, really interesting jazz guy, which I could take over Lalo Schiffer anyway, any day. <laughs> Although I, I dig Lalo people, all those Lalo Schiffer fans, but Lalo, Lalo can get kind of samey. Yeah. But I, I like the Roy Budd stuff here. You know, the thing is, we're talking early 70s, and jazz was very brassy. Mm-hmm. So we got we got a lot of brassy jazz sometimes. So like, <laughs> so, right, right. Yep. It sounds kind of cheesy, but you know, back then it was like, like monk the funk with the jazz, yep. you know. Well, jazz was getting so, in a weird place anyway because he had fusion, which I love, but you also had the free jazz thing. So it was kind of you never knew where it was going to go. It's not your traditional. It's not like your daddy's jazz. Oh, anymore. I love free jazz, man. Really? Uh, I do. I do. I'm a man of many mysteries. See, I like some Sun Ra, but when it comes to like Ornette, I'm like, I don't know. This guy, it, it, it's pushing it a little too far. To I don't think he really knows what the fuck he's doing. <laughs> I read no, I respect people who can't dig it. You know, I I, I don't dig it all. But then when it speaks to me, I'm like, yeah. And a lot of Miles Fusion is kind of lost on me. Not all of it, but yeah. There's, there's parts I don't dig, and there's parts that I really, really love. I mean, like Tony Williams' Lifetime with uh, Alan Holdsworth. Yeah. That is some of my favorite music ever. But other stuff is like, eh. So it's back and forth. Weather Report, I can't stand. Did you ever hear Did you ever hear this, uh, of all people? There was a CD. Charlie Watts and Jim Keltner got together with, like, bunch of session guys mm-hmm. and they did like 12 tracks devoted to their favorite drummers and the stuff is so out there interesting i know charlie yeah, watches a jazz drummer that's why he actually has that kind of odd white style but yeah this thing with jim keltner it's like this like devotion there's like this a track called air two there's a track called tony williams a, they named the tracks after their favorite guys mm-hmm. their influences Stuff is so good, so out there. Some of the stuff is so experimental. It's really good. It's it's like yeah, yeah. Billy Cobham. There's, there's a lot of good stuff there. The the early Mahavishnu yeah. stuff. I mean, you know, there's things I love, and then there's stuff that's like eh, and that everybody loves. Like Weather Report. I can't stand fucking Weather Report. Jocko. I don't get it. You know. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Jocko, but though I, I I do like some Weather Report. Not all. But Lenny White, I get, you know, so it's, there's there's lines in there. Stanley Clark, I love him. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, next up, he goes on to Chino, which is a Western. I don't know nothing about that. And then he does Mr. Majestic. Bronson briefly pauses his run of Michael Winter pictures with this, on the surface, rather <laughs> odd choice. <laughs> I'm sorry. I like that. That was good. Briefly pauses his run. I like that. It's good. But uh, on the surface, sorry. is a rather odd choice. <laughs> <laughs> An Elmore Leonard script about a melon farmer going against the mob. Seriously, there's this big lunk of a Salvatore Baccaro lookalike. The beast likes watermelon. Uh, Trying to run a low-rent protection racket on local farmers. He gives you a few drunks to pick crops. You pay him, everything's okay. But Bronson's an ex-military man and ex-con, go figure. And only hires the best Mexican crop pickers. Seriously, let's not get into that one. Uh, so... So Beccaro Jr. here presses charges against him for assault and battery for running the guy off his farm mind, and Bronson winds up in jail because, you know, the U.S. justice system's so, you know, above board and you can always trust her to do the right thing. Meantime, our melon farming heroes got a mutual distaste on for another jail mobster who our Beccaro wannabe decides to break out during a prison-to-prison bus transport, which, by the way, Bronson's also on. Of course, Bronson plays hero, takes over the hijacked bus, dumps both mobsters back in the cop's laps, 
Now he's in for it, and they start going after his workers, his girl, his crops, his place, to the point where it turns into a high noon scenario, and Bronson's going to take him down for the camp. The director here is a guy named Richard Fleischer. He's the guy behind Soylent Green, Mandingo, which we spoke to on our Blaxploitation show, Amityville... Fantastic Voyage. Fantastic Voyage. Fantastic Voyage, Amityville 3D, and both Conan the Destroyer and Red Sonja, which we dealt with in our Schwarzenegger show, as well as a few mm. interesting film noirs back in the day, like Trap, The Narrow Margin, and His Kind of Woman. Yes. A career that's mm. all over the fucking place, so go figure. Despite the jaw-dropping weirdness of the plot and a bit too much coincidence and entanglement, you figure standing up the protection racket would have been enough for the premise. This is another one that most guys I've spoken to over the years seem to acknowledge as one of the best Bronson films, often as an afterthought or in the same breath as The Mechanic. I don't know about that, but it's a pretty damn decent film, which, given the base premise, he's a watermelon farmer, I certainly wasn't expecting. Well. <laughs> fuck Trump. Without these guys coming across our border and working in this kind of heat, mm-hmm. working our fields, picking our fruit, Picking our cotton, growing our orange juice for how expensive would it be? (laughs) For a pittance, for a pittance, because they're used to that. Where would we be? But no, we're preventing those people from coming over here. Come on, he's setting up ICE bus. They're going to bust everybody in friggin' New York now. Come on. Yeah, yeah. And meanwhile, what Americans you know are going down to Florida, going down to California, saying. I'll work there for $25 an hour. No. <laughs> because nobody's going to fucking pay him that kind of money. Of course. You'd be paying like you know, $10 for a freaking gallon of orange juice. Get out of here. Right. This is like day laborers. There's a lot of day laborers in my area, in my city. Jersey City, folks. Who These guys wait on corners. They wait for SUVs to pick them up. They all pile into the SUVs. You know, these guys, they probably make 100, 150 a day. Because the guy's picking them up. There's construction jobs. They're not going to pay them $30 an hour, $20 an hour. No. This is how America works. Trump has no fucking idea. The Republicans have no fucking idea. I'm sorry. I'm getting to the point with this movie, folks. Just bear with me. So <laughs> nope, nobody – and this goes all the way back to the 70s. Nobody has any fucking idea what's going on in this country. These people come over. They're starving. They want to feed their families. They're willing to work a hard day, week, month, year. They go back home with some money, right? Because the people here say, I'll work for $20 an hour. Yeah, go ahead. Go back to the bar. Yep. Because nobody's going to pay you $20 an hour for doing that kind of job. This is how America – why do you think all this stuff is made in Japan, made in China, made in Vietnam? Now it's made in fucking India. Mm -hmm. And it don't fit. Have you ever seen a fat Indian? No. So, so let's go back to Mr. Majestic. Very. So Bronson's a guy with a heart, which is interesting. It's one of the first early roles where you actually see he's a guy with a heart. He has this oddball history. Richard Fleischer, yeah, as you say, his career is all over the place. So, okay. The, the Goomba you mentioned in this movie is Alatieri. Who? A lot of people will remember from The Getaway, the, the Peckinpah picture with Steve McQueen. Mm-hmm. And, and that Al Lutieri is the guy who does a job with Steve McQueen in, in, in The Getaway, who Steve shoots in the shoulder thinking he kills him. Very strange Steve McQueen movie, by the way. Steve McQueen did not do all great movies where he was a hero. Um, so, you know, Al's like bleeding and he ends up at the farm of a vet 
who's the guy from the Andy Griffith show. Floyd the Barber? <laughs> yes, it's Floyd the Barber. Yeah. You remember this? Uh-huh, yes, I do. And Sally Struthers, Sally Struthers is his girlfriend or his wife. Mm-hmm. And then, and then Floyd the Barber works on Al Leteri's shoulder, and you know, you know Al Leteri at this point. He's like, y'all, well, y'all, work on my fucking shoulder. You got big tits, y'all. <laughs> so he fucks Sally Struthers, which was, <sighs> what's his name's daughter on TV? Archie Bunker, Carol O'Connor. Archie Bunker's daughter. And this is before she started crying on TV about, like, poor people and whatever the hell. Right, right. So the shock of all shocks, 1972, I'm in a movie theater watching Sally Struthers' big tits <laughs> get sucked by Al Terry in a Sam Peckinpah movie. I'm like, oh, my God, what the hell? Who knew she had a big rack? So, <laughs> Just some fat she girl. Did, she had a huge rack. <laughs> and, she, and you know what? She she was making her husband Floyd the barber. Yeah. She was making him uh, a sub. <laughs> She's like, go back to the back seat, honey. I'm gonna blow this guy. Wow. Yeah, you know, it was like so weird. <laughs> uh, well, it's Peck and Paul for you, very strange guy. So anyway, Al Thierry, who by the way worked for William Griff a couple of years later, who who refused to get into a swimming pool with a shark. It's another story. <laughs> you should see this William Griff. William Griffey. Documentary he did a couple of years, about oh, two, three years about, ago. Yeah, about Stanley, though, I think it was, right? Yeah, Stanley. Yeah, Alan <laughs> Terry shows up and he's like, I'm not getting that fucking pool with that shark. And Bill Greff is like, Okay, I'm not getting that fucking pool with that shark. <laughs> anyway, Al, Al died young, but he's another of these guys who always look old. Anyway, what a cast of people we don't really know. I, I like this film. Um, strange, strange. Bozo character actor Paul Coslow <laughs> had a brief front as this like kind of really pale, long-haired, and then he went bald uh, character actor who appeared in a bunch of these kind of pictures this time period. It's like villain-esque hood. I'm not sure. It's it's a it's a movie you have to see. Yeah, it's not what you expect. Let's put it that way. Put it that way. Yeah. So next up, from here on out, most of Bronson's films, especially his good ones, will exclusively hail from J. Lee Thompson. But there is one important exception. Michael Winner, who gave us The Mechanic and the Stone Killer, among others, will stick to the man like glue for one infamous series which kicks off with this film. The interesting thing here is that most people say Bronson's New York architect, Paul Kersey, is driven a vigilantism when his wife, scary old Hope Lang, looking a whole lot older than her ghost of Mrs. Muir days, and her daughter are raped and effectively killed. The daughter retreats into a sort of artistic shock. The wife is actually beaten to death during a Bosch robbery attempt. But if you watch the film, the daughter isn't actually raped. It's more of an attempted sexual assault. Either way, it's a brutal sequence, all the more bizarre for featuring Jeff Goldblum in a Jughead hat as one of the malfeasance. He's pissed off, so he, I'm talking about Bronson. So he stuffs a, a dress sock with quarters and wanders the streets until some dope tries mugging him and winds up running off after one smack in the face. Meantime, one of his clients takes him out to the target range because, you know, this is what you do to business contacts, and <laughs> gives him a shiny new revolver as a present. From here on out, he starts walking the streets playing Punisher, blowing muggers away and inspiring people to similar actions, individuals, and groups. There's actually a great TV report where some old Mom's Mabley type takes a guy down with a hat pin and beating him with a handbag, and then a whole group chases down and beats on another one. So naturally, crime goes way the fuck down. 
So even though the cops, led by crusty old Vincent Gardenia, had to track down the mystery shooter, they're reluctant to expose him, given how well all this pushback he inspired is working at doing their job for them. And thus, even after they wind up IDing the gun, it's buried and he's advised to leave New York City, setting up the rest of the series. There's a little gotcha ending, sure to elicit audience cheers, it's all over. Like a lot of films of this era and type, Death Wishes filled with some grotty New York ambiance, the way a lot of us remember it being dark, gritty, covered in graffiti and trash from garbage strikes, blackouts, and major financial issues, where every couple of blocks was a whole different neighborhood like i said earlier and you best watch it back forget about any alleyways or side entrances you never know what the hell you're going to find but there's probably a good shot it'll get you rolled taken or killed it's a very different place these days and sadly not for the better but for all its faults you can't deny it's super safe as such, while it's certainly a dark film, if you like stuff like Serpico 52 Pickup, The Laughing Policeman, Taking a Pelham 123, Busting, Vigilante, The Exterminator, etc., don't let this film's bad reputation stop you. It's a very good atmospheric film of its type, just with a, one rough sequence in it. What's your take? I know you have real issues with it. I, I do, but I, but I have issues for a lot more issues with some of the sequels. I... I... I have to say, I, I agree with what you just said. Your summary at your closing was really good. I, I, I agree with all that. It's 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 really of its time. It's really good. It's the best of the films. It's the only real film of its type. It's the only serious one. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, the serious, well, it wouldn't become as serious until the sequels. So at this time, we didn't think it was as serious. And it wasn't as serious until, like, a while later. A while later, and they became really jokey, um, so go ahead. Yeah, well, jokey and yet... Unintentionally <sighs> so. <laughs> Unintentionally so, yeah. Uh, a very interesting... Fuck, my mother wanted to do Charles Bronson. Wow. It was, it was, yeah, yeah, like when this movie came out, my mother was like, Charles Bronson. <laughs> like, huh? <laughs> Every... Mature woman suddenly wanted to do Charles Bronson. Is that like when my grandmother was I mean, hot for Shatner on T.J. Hooker? <laughs> grandfather? <laughs> we all could believe grandmother. that. Like, seriously, William Shatner? All right, whatever. And this is when he's getting dumpy and he's got the, the rug. <laughs> hey, whatever. But I hear what you're saying about Hope Blank. Hey, you know, it, that, that rape scene is rough, even though it's... <sighs> It's like, is it attempted, or was she really gang raped the daughter? You know, it's here or there. It's it, it, it's it's rough. It is rough. Either way, yeah. For for a non pornographic film, for let's no, let me rephrase that. For a non roughy pornographic film, there's a few roughies like Intrusion. I mean, you, I forced uh, entry. Forced entry, yes, listeners know from whence we speak. Hot summer in the city. Uh, not all, yeah, not all pornographic films are rough no, like this. Hell no. uh, it's a certain subgenre no. of subgenres. Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you for saving me. Even though it's implied, it's rough. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's rough. That probably makes this film all the more powerful. But it's a subtextual thing for this movie. It's 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 Bronson's reaction. You know, like you mentioned the thing with the pennies, and he smacks the guy in the head with the sock with the pennies. He does throw up afterwards, mm-hmm. which, you know, it could have been digression here. Two years ago, the guy who acts by showing up in a hotel room and doing his lines and leaving, Bruce Willis, mm-hmm. uh, who used to be like a fucking hero 
Bruce Willis redid Death Wish with, of all guys, directing the the crazy fucking director, the guy who did those horrible fucking uh, hostile movies. Um, Eli Roth, asshole. Yes, Eli Roth. I hate that yeah. fucking guy. So you thought Death Wish was the movie you did not want to see, and it was very tame. And and believe me, folks, I did not want to see Eli Roth's version <laughs> of this movie because I'm sure it would have been something nobody wanted to see. Mm-hmm. But it was it was in, in effect too tame. And Bruce was walking through the film, although it was one of his better parts because they probably said you have to show up on set. <laughs> but um, that being said. This is the best of the Death Wish films. And Charles Bronson suddenly had a completely new career. Yes. Vincent Gardinia, also in Mafia and Italian crime films, is pierced in this. And lots of other TV people. But, you know, you buy it all. You buy it all. It was a one-off at the time, 1974. But we had no idea how huge this was going to be. Yeah. It just... It just and for years the critics hated it there was a lot of backlash to it and but then a lot of positive response towards it so it's like who are you looking at that who are you listening to some people in some quarters it was reviled as this horrific fascist piece of reactionary oh my god how could they possibly advocate vigilantism and then you've got the people that were dealing with new york city at the time and the people that understand the bernie Getz situation that happened later and well you know so that, were i i I don't want to cut into you, but to that I will speak. So New York at this time period, 74, 75, 76, was just about becoming grungier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the deuce, oh, you had your pimps, your hookers, 14th Street, Blasey Blas, the same thing. Lower East Side, it was getting pretty funky. You know, we had people that were, uh, houses were being abandoned and people were like, Living in them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. uh, what do we call those? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Squatters. And it was becoming pretty funky. Graffiti was all over the place. You know, I got nothing against graffiti. Some was very artful, but it was like fall. You did not want to go on the um, subways at that time, which were filled with graffiti as well. <laughs> yeah, subways were becoming pretty scary. That's where we had the Guardian Angels, man. We love them. Yeah, you know, people, you joke. Oh, uh, Guardian Angels, ha, ha, ha. No joke. You know why they, You know why those guys came out there? Because the cops Laugh wouldn't do fucking... it. The cops were pussies. Right. They were scared of these fucking muggers and shit. That's how right. bad it was. You la- right. You laugh at this middle-aged fucking guy, Curtis Thewa, who talks like a New York fucking accent. This guy. He was a hero. He was a hero. We all loved him. He, he had kidding me. Yeah. And you know what? Okay, so he had hoods working with him, and he had, like, guys out of jail working with him. Mm-hmm. You know why? He talked to these people. He said, we got to help these people. Yeah, him and Lisa, they were the shit. Yeah. And so, okay, so this is at the beginning of this period. This is why the other pictures in this series were even rougher. Yep. But we'll get to that. So next up, Break Hard Pass. Talk about outside your comfort zone. This time, the seemingly <laughs> inseparable Chuck and Jill Killaron head out west for this bizarre Alistair McLean semi-spy story set in the Old West, where the bulk of the action, such as it is, takes place on a train full of supplies for a military fort hit with diphtheria. Uh-huh. She's the piece on the side of the state governor, and Chuck is the notorious criminal brought aboard on an early stop being transported by the marshal for trial. Of course, all of that is bullshit, and Chuck is really a government agent looking to bust up an arms deal between some bad 
Chinese and the Indians, which means a lot of little twists and turns and deaths as the train makes its way to its destination. While it's not a bad premise, and personally speaking, I always love films set on trains, this one remains somewhat lacking. It's flat somehow. The actors really can't pull it off, and when old stone-faced Bronson and his chilly woman Ironer the best in show, you know you got a problem. Directed by a fellow named Tom Grease, whose most notable credits are the sci-fi snooze fest Donovan's Brain, Lady Ice, which we spoke to in our Donald Sutherland show, a few episodes of the likable 50s science fiction theater, and the same for the fun 60s shows Honey West with a slinky Anne Francis and her pet ocelot Bruce, and Batman, which we talked about in our early superhero television show, a strange, uneven, and to be honest, rather undistinguished journeyman who apparently didn't have it in him to invest anything much in this project, and it shows. It should work, it sounds great on paper, it doesn't work. The one Tom Grimes movie you didn't mention was Helter Skelter. Nah. <laughs> which was a phenomenal, shocking, scary fucking movie. Made for TV, of all things. The book is better. <laughs> yeah, we know that, but that's beside the point. <laughs> so, yeah, the one Tom Grimes movie you didn't mention. But he did a lot of TV, TV work. He was a journeyman yeah. who probably had a very perverse side to him, hence Skel- Helter Skelter. Yeah, Break Our Pass is weird because... Charles Bronson is like a spy sheriff, a sheriff spy. You know, it's based on the Alistair McLean thing. And we got this, again, a combo cast of like TV and feature film supporting actors, Ben Johnson, Richard Crenna, Charles Durning, Ed Lauder, wonderful Ed Lauder, David Holliston, Jerry Goldsmith scores. So we're definitely getting up to our, our, you know, we're going up a notch here. But it's an odd film, but... It's it's probably about as hard as Breakout. Yes. So 1975, same year. How do you follow the mechanic, Mr. Majestic, Death Wish, even his trio of Euro crime pictures? That's right. Let's get fucking weird again and cast the guy as a ragtag, good-humored chopper pilot and odd jobs man for hire with gawky Randy Quaid as his grumpy sidekick. This is his second and last Tom Grease film after Breakheart Pass. Wifey Jill Ireland turns up yet again. Thank God she's hot or this will be getting tedious by now. As the wife of Robert Duvall, who's pissed off rich corporate fat cat John Houston enough to wind up framed for a murder and tossed into a Mexican prison, presumably to disappear forever. But Jill's not having it and hires Bronson and his loosey-goosey pal, Sherry North, last seen in Charlie Varick, which she talked about on our Joe Don Baker show, to fly a helicopter into the prison, give the boys a show, and pretend there's a rape to distract everybody, if you can believe that, while the guys grab hubby and sprint everyone away to safety. What makes this ridiculous plot even more flabbergasting? It was supposedly based on an actual event. So, go ahead, you take it. <laughs> it's an odd movie, because I don't know what to make of this film. Uh... Which is a strange thing. Remember I mentioned Paul Tablet recently who did this, these two Charles Bronson biographies or filmographies? He never discusses this film, pretty much. <laughs> and I'm like, I wonder why. I guess you didn't like it. Uh, it has an oddball cast. Uh, you know what? It's like, you ever seen a movie which is like there and not there? Mm-hmm. It's it's like, there's no eh yeah. to it. There's no oomph. It's also done by Tom Grise. Or Grease, you know, whichever. Uh, whichever one of us is mispronouncing his name. <laughs> and it's okay. It's I, I actually if you had to choose between the two, Breakheart Pass is oh, yeah, much more filmic and cinematic. But I will say this, Breakout was a huge fucking success in the movie theaters. It was uh I remember when it came out and the bombarded with trailers, bombarded you get trailer compilations. Charles Bronson, breakout. Coming out there, man. M. And yeah, folks, remember before R, there was M for mature audiences only. Then R became for restricted 
audiences only. And then the weirdest thing is it's supposedly based on an actual event. <laughs> Which was in another country, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the the actual event was like somewhere else, but I forgot where where it was. <laughs> yeah. <me too. laughs> Next up is two that I didn't bother with: Hard Times, which is a Walter Hill, and From Noon <gasps> Till Three, which is a comedy. Oh, you bastard! I very rarely say you bastard, but <laughs> <laughs> I think you do. I thought it was every week. Well, Hard Times, which is, it's a movie I'm shocked you haven't seen. It's actually, it was, talk about macho. It was a Walter Hill picture with James Coburn as a flim-flamming talky guy who kind of talks this really hardened, actually, sans mustache, Charles Bronson, to be like a street fighter. Just go meet people. This is like the Depression era. Beat the shit out of guys. He would bet on them, you know? And to beat the shit out of some more guys, Strother Martin's in it. So you get, you get the kind of thing. This is like really one of those gritty 1930s. Bob Tessier, who people remember from the deep mm-hmm. character actor who died much too early, actually. A uh, bald guy. A lot of people in this movie. It's mainly a fisticuffs, mano a mano movie. Bronson's pretty good in this. Uh, Jill Ireland. <laughs> Here's the thing. You know, he loved her. Yes. Very much so. And she was not a bad actress, but she wasn't fit for every role that he he put her in or championed her for as his co-star. Some work well. Yes, some work well and some are abominable. Some work well and some, I wouldn't say abominable, some did not work as well, to be kind. I want to be kind. And, and so this is this is a movie some people really, really love. You know, I have a movie where guys beating the shit out of each other for 90 minutes. <laughs> they live? <laughs> no, that was only 20 minutes. That's <laughs> different. That's different. Fight Club? That was, in the con- that was, no, that was in the context of a sci-fi thing. Fight Club is an entirely different story. I still haven't figured that movie out. But Hard Times was two really good actors and it didn't grab me although hard times has a lot of fans i will say that now the other one you didn't see and the one reason why i said you bastard and and, and dearly because i love you man (laughs) is it's just a very simple film it came out it disappeared united artists tried to re-release it i hope people will come to see it frank d gilroy I know. Who the fuck is that? So he directed this, and he he really was like a playwright. This guy was running plays. Subject was roses. Yeah. You know, so we're talking heavy hitter. Uh, he also did the screenplay for the subject was roses. Uh, Once in Paris. Wasn't really a prolific guy, but when he hit upon something and it worked, he just kind of, you know, ran with it. So I guess him and... Charles Bronson, they got to this group of people that knew each other at Christmas dinners. This is the story that I picked up upon reading some stuff. And Bronson said, I want to do something different with my wife. Okay. No jokes. So, <laughs> so well, Frank D. Gilroy says, well, I got this story I wrote. You might want to take a look at it. And then Bronson says, okay. And they couldn't find anybody to direct it. So Frank D. Gilroy says, I'll direct it. So United Artists says, well, Charles Bronson, you know, fucking you're, you're doing really well right now. Past two or three years. Fuck, you can make us a lot of money. What kind of movie is this? It's a movie about <clears throat> a bank robber 
is actually a really nice guy, but he has a reputation of being a villain. And he holds up at the ranch of this widow, and they fall in love. The thing is, he may have to leave the widow, and the widow's life post the bank robber will be, you were with a bad man, but he was really a nice guy. Now, how do you sell that? (laughs) It's really a good movie. It's really very sweet, but they couldn't market this thing. How do you market this thing? He he was really good because, you know, Bronson comes in, and and Jill Island is really good in this. I have to say this. Bronson comes in. He's all bravado. He's doing that, like, I'm shouting out my lines kind of thing. You know, we're all Yusef from the Al Pacino School of Acting. <laughs> you know, I'm a bank, bank robber. Yeah, you're a lady. You know, that kind of thing. And she's like a school marm or something. And so she writes these dime store novels. You know, she writes these, you know, this is Western film. She writes these dime store novels like My Life, you know, Meeting or whatever the guy's name was. You know, Meeting the Villain, My Love, My Love Affair. And the thing was, did he ever actually leave or did they stay together? It's a a very subtle thing. It's a very sweet movie. And I think he hoped, Bronson, hoped a lot for that. And I think he really wanted to sort of break out of, how do I say, this this cage he got himself into. Mm -hmm. I hear that. And, And I think she was good for it. So this is, these are one of those movies, actually, where they worked well together. She was good for the part. But you probably had a guy who, who had written primarily for the stage, didn't direct so much. So the movie came, ended up, I remember I saw this, yeah, in the theater, very stagey. So, I mean, how do you really open up a two-part, you know, a two-person thing like this anyway? But still, uh, I, I it didn't do well, and... They tried to re-release it. I'm sure there's not much I could have done with that. I think it was a huge disappointment for him. Next. All right, so St. Ives, 1976. Now, this is an improvement. After a couple of weaker entries in the Bronson filmography, he rebounds with his killer neo-noir, the first of his collaborations with J. Lee Thompson. Keep an eye out for both Jeff Goldblum and Robert Englund long before either of them achieved their respective levels of fame as sleazy thugs, a role which both of them would milk a few times in the early part of their career, and the king of nerves, Alicia Cook Jr., in a quick bit part, but the film is already filled with names like John Houseman, Maximilian Shells, and especially Faye Shrink, and one of my favorite 70s ladies, the stunning Jackie Bissett. The plot mm. is typical noir of the era. Think Elliot Gould in The Long Goodbye, Robert Mitchum in Farewell, My Lovely, or Jack Nicholson in Chinatown. With Bronson's former crime beat newsman drawn into courier the cash ransom for some stolen documents and winding up running afoul of various lawmen and mob types along the way. I mean, the first place he's sent to, there's a dead body stuffed in a washing machine, and the cops just happen to waltz in and pick him up, complete with a suspiciously large pocket of cash in hand. Things get more complicated from here, obviously, though there's never enough of a sense that Bronson's in danger, which is essential for a proper noir anti-hero, or particularly dissolute and on the brink. It comes off more like he's lazy and a bit down on his luck. The cops are too quickly brought around to his side, the various twists of plot never seem to truly stick it to the guy, and even the obligatory femme fatale, while stunning and appropriately oversexed, never actually leads him to ruin. He's unflappable and smiling throughout, and that's definitely a flaw. 
Even so, the film looks great, plays well otherwise, has a great funky score, features some stunning aesthetic in Houseman's richly appointed mansion, and a resplendent Jackie Bissett, and has plenty of likable character actors to make the proceedings not only watchable, but very enjoyable throughout. If only Thompson understood what makes an actual film noir, it'd be one of my favorites of its type, like Long Goodbye and Farewell My Lovely Already Are. As it is, it's a pleasant misfire. Well, I agree with you. Everything you said, it's really good. It's just a little short of being really good. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, but it's very good. Actually, Bronson's very – the whole cast, as you name-checked, everything you said, I agree with you. This is about a year before Jacqueline Bissett would be super popular for The Deep, which I have my dear besides she had nipples that would put your eyes out. <laughs> um, yeah, we all remember that movie, oh, right? Yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> She's white. <laughs> She's white. <laughs> Yeah, Nick Nolte looked great in that before he became, I don't know what he became. Did you write that for a um, the American version? <laughs> no, The Deep is a fun movie, but, you know, like, we never thought of Jacqueline Bissett that way, and then... Oh, I did. Suddenly... <laughs> oh, yeah, Ever Jackie since day Bissett. Day night. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, okay, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> anyway, so... Um, it's 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 not bad. It's, it's very good. It could have been much better, but that being said, it's, it's you know, it is what it is. So uh, there's two more oddballs in 1977. We actually mentioned one of them uh, the other week, Radon and Tebby and the White Buffalo. I don't know if you need to touch on either of those quick. Well, yeah, yeah, Radon and Tebby, Irving Kirshner, multi-star film, actually got sold on the names of the people who were really, really fucking popular at the time. It was a TV movie which got sold overseas as a feature. We have Peter Finch, Network, Charles Bronson, well, a star of our show, and Yafet Koto, who was, you know, popular in so many things at the time period. Uh, God bless that guy. He's a character. <laughs> but we also had, like, damn, this is like, you ever know a movie that's full of so many people? You go, like, damn. Let me just name check. Martin Balsam, Horst Buckles, John Saxon, Jack Warden, Robert Loggia, Eddie Constantine. Remember Eddie? Eddie Constantine. We did a show on him. <laughs> right. James Woods, Harvey Lambeck from... What the hell was that? We talked about him recently, too. The Frankie Avalon That's movies. That's it. Remember? Yes, he was Zipper. <laughs> Zipper. Yeah, Zipper. yeah. Yes, brother. And Tyke Andrews from uh, the, the police thing, the whatever the fucking show was. Mod Squad. <laughs> Mod Squad, wow. And, yeah, he was a captain. I mean, this thing was super loaded with people. What was the problem? There were like three competing Radon and Tibby movies at the same time. Uh, this, this one was better directed by the most because Irving Kirshner, a journeyman, like uh, you mentioned earlier uh, about someone else. But this Irving Kirshner was the guy who would do Empire Strikes Back, probably the most weirdest freaking major temple movie ever, yes. who worked a lot in TV, Ben Casey, Naked City, blah, blah, blah. He did Spies, that Elliot Gould film we mm -hmm. talked about. Yes. He also did Return of a Man Called Horse. Should ever we do a Richard Harris movie? And mention Richard Harris so devoting himself to a film, he had his own pectoral muscles ripped by hanging from a fucking thing. Wow. I don't know what. It's true. But anyway, Irving Kirshner directed this. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been, you know, I, I name-checked all these people. It was on, uh, I don't know, NBC or whatever it was. You know, It was okay, but there were like three or four competing, as I said, 
Antebi movies. You know, basically, there was an airport, they hijacked passengers on this airplane, and the Israeli army kind of came to the rescue, sort of. A lot of people died. Well, you know, it's like more for the course. But Bronson, Bronson, he's he's okay. He gets lost. It's it's just it's just a thing. It's not for him. Yeah. So, 1978, Telephone. At the time, it was a fascinating Cold War spy effort relating to sleeper agents, triggered into acts of sabotage by a Robert Frost poem. Apparently, as this came in one of our detente phases, the Ruskies are as perturbed as we are by all this, and send in, wait for it, commie spy Charles Bronson, who's supposed to have a photographic memory yet, and his sidekick, Lee Remick, to bump off the rogue Stalinist responsible for enabling all this, the ever-nervous Donald Pleasance. Oh, and they also don't want us to know that they weren't actively responsible. Some horse shit about saving face, don't ask me. There's a big twist relating to somebody being a double agent and trying to put our hero or heroes out of action, and a change of heart that results in a blackmail-leveraged happy ending, quote-unquote, that could only come in a spy film. Did I mention Butch Tyne Daly of Cagney and Lacey fame as president accounted for? How about crusty old Patrick McGee as Bronson's rusky boss? Even breakout Shereen North pops up, and every one of them's an ill fit for the roles they're given right down to our leads. It's actually not a bad spy film of Sarah, which bore more in common with things like the Harry Palmer series, which we talk about in our Michael Caine show, and the spy who came in from the cold in the likes of Bond or the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible series. And as such, it tends to be a bit slow and talky, like the same director as the Black Windmill, but without the annoying parenting angle. The only real problem here beyond some slightly dry direction from Don Siegel, who also gave us the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Dirty Harry and Charlie Varick, two of which were discussed in our Donald Sutherland and Joe Don Baker shows respectively, is that the very idea of Russia not celebrating and doubling down on throwing the U.S. into chaos and weakening their greatest enemy by putting their sleeper agents into the White House itself is hilariously quaint, if not absurd, in the wake of the last three years. If there ever was a telephone situation ranked up to its extremes, we're living it right now, only without any Bronson, Russian, or otherwise to save us from Putin and his hand puppet of a president. Oh, I like this film. I have to agree with you. Yeah, it's 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 something that prevents it from being all in. You know, it's just like it's good, but Lee Remick is fine. You know, uh, very popular at the time. Um, Jill Island is isn't in it. <laughs> Charlie Bronson, who's like the old American vigilante at this point, as a Russian agent. <laughs> Who's working for the good guys? It's a bit odd. Donald Pleasance, bless his soul. He's Donald Pleasance was so good. Even even when we had too much Donald Pleasance, too much is not enough. I would love Donald Pleasance. We should do a show on him someday. <laughs> we should. We should. Uh, the Donald Pleasance imitations will be holds no holds barred. But no, the guy is really good. The guy. You know, but you had playing. to take some diet pills or crystal meth beforehand so you get appropriately nervous. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, from playing pedophiles to to agents to sleazy fox to playing no holds barred super fucking heroes with a gun. I mean, who would have thought that guy like in the original Halloween was like, yeah, fucking kill him, right? Doctor Loomis, yep. Dr. Or don't Loomis. forget him in the what was that hilarious one that Coatsy did, the Paganini Horror. <laughs> yeah, but still, like he went from like schlemiel to like. Donald, fucking kill him, man. How about cul-de-sac? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, we could definitely do a show on him. He's <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. No, you know, no, all kidding aside, that guy's a really good actor. He was a really good actor. And um, people, he's a, like he's a, he's like a type. Yeah, we're, we're dealing with a guy who's a, who we thought was a type, but is not. 
And the same thing with Donald Pleasance. He's a guy who we thought was a type, but he really wasn't. And, you know, Charles Bronson and Donald Pleasance, two different actors, also guys who were really good actors, but came out to be because they really weren't as people stereotyped them to be. Back to Telephone. I like this movie. I wish I could have liked it more. It has that Lalo Schifrin score. <laughs> but I, w- I wish it was better. Uh, it's it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. That's bottom line. Uh, Love and Bullets, 1979. A real stinker, this one. John Houston was supposed to helm this one, but walked off this set, so they got somebody named Stuart Rosenberg, who only did a handful of films, the most notable being Cool Hand Luke, The Laughing Policeman, and The Amityville Horror. Okay, but he's hardly enough terror. Ireland is at her most annoying pretending to be a Clara Bow-type American gang mall. You have to hear this to believe it. She's so bad. And Bronson's got to pull a midnight run to bring her back to the States to testify against her former sugar daddy, who, of course, is out to kill them both. You've seen the story a million times before, and with less of a cast than this, Rod Steiger, Henry Silva, Strother Martin, but I'm positive any film you could name would come off better than this one does. It's just workaday and boring, even with some nice snowy winter sequences involving car chases, explosions, and trains. And while serviceable, the DVD does it no favors with an over abundance of redshift most notable in everyone's skin tone from what i know this was a problem film as you mentioned you know like switching directors we got an interesting cast henry silver strata martin again bradford Dillman, everybody knows my michael figazzo paul caso there's that name again billy gray from you know what some show we were growing up with father knows best yes Stuart Rosenberg is not a bad director. Come on. The CB, you know, like Cool Hand Luke. How many people have made a film like that? He also did The Laughing Policeman, The Drowning Pool. Really good films. Then, Amityville Horror. Uh, and a bunch of TV. It's like he's all over the place. He's all, yeah. Well, a lot of these guys are all over the place. The Public Grammage Village, which I think is a good movie. But, you know, we'll leave the butt to the Mickey Rourke show. But, uh... <laughs> Should that ever happen? I don't know but, about that. But, but, uh, I'm fucking with you, man. But, but Love, Love and Bullets is a problematic film. I, from what I've read about it, it's problematic production. I watched this recently for this show, and it's like, you ever seen a Charles Bronson movie where he looks lost? Yeah, well, this is one of them. Yeah. It's not like he doesn't want to be there. It just looks like Aimless. What the hell's going on here? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure what's going on. This was one of those ITC films. We discussed this in a couple of our other shows where ITC suddenly had a huge influx of money, British company, and they made a couple of movies with like multi-international casts, hoping for big box office worldwide. Uh, Cassandra Crossing was one, Firecracker was the other one, uh, James Coburn, and... All these Lou Grade jobs, you mentioned his name a lot. Yeah, yeah, Lou Grade, but yeah, ITC was that thing, and I think they thought John Houston coming into this ITC thing was going to be big, and then he pulls out for whatever reason, it's, it's, we don't want to get into this. And then Stuart Rosenberg, who, you know, actually did have some good movies in the CV, comes in probably just to be a fixer, and next thing we know, it's like, we can't fix this. Yeah. <laughs> and so this is probably one of the later period Charles Bronson movies, which is like we'd rather have forgotten about. 
So we're following into his 80s phase, borderline, 1980. Every once in a while, Bronson drops in a film that really surprises you. I mean, we'd seen this before with Mr. Majestic, and to a lesser extent, things like Caliphon, The Stone Killer, or St. Ives. The kind of films you don't expect that he'd work well in, or like Majestic, seem off-putting just by the base premise. And yet, if you give it half a chance, it turns out to be pretty damn good indeed. This one's all about working Border Patrol. In fact, they were actually involved in the making of film as technical advisors, and the film was touted as very true to life. If you want to know how things were working that job, at least prior to Trump's insanity, this will show you. But it's also a cop detective film where Bronson's brought in to track down the killer of his pal, fellow Border Patrol man Wilford Brimley. There's a false trail suggesting how to do with drug smugglers, but it's actually about Ed Harris, this scumbag scout, they call him, who takes big money from Mexicans to sneak him across the border, where they wind up working crappy jobs like picking crops, and who won't balk it? gunning down INS who catch him in the act. So again, in a sense, this one probably won't play well with a certain sector nowadays, but it's not politicized like it would be now. It's more about maintaining the border and ensuring tax dollars and services, and crappy crap-picking and janitorial jobs might go to those with legitimate claims to them. And moreover, this is all the trappings and setting of the film, because what it's really about is Bronson solving a mystery and taking due vengeance on a ruthless killer in a seedy smuggling operation who, for what it's worth, isn't even Mexican. I mean, this wasn't even supposed to be a Bronson film. They wanted Gene Hackman for the lead, but he backed out last minute. I always remember this one for two things. One where he makes an informant drink from an absolutely disgusting public toilet while roughing him up. And a quick but raw scene where there's a big lineup of traffic at the border and a car overheats to a lot of screaming. Turns out there's a woman hiding in the engine block getting slowly to death by the steam. Damn, cars were bigger in those days, but who knew you could do that? It was directed by some nobody who did a lot of TV movies in the 80s. This, I believe, was his only real film credit. Even so, it's not top-tier Bronson, but it is very watchable. And you could do a whole hell of a lot worse digging through his catalog than this. I agree. It's a really good Charles Bronson film. Not for the action, for the character development. He's, he, he, yeah, surprising, as you said. He shows range. There were three border movies made around this time period. One with Telly Savalas, surprisingly, which is quite good. One with Jack Nicholson, surprisingly, which is quite good. And this one, of the three, this is the best. You guys can look them all up because we're going to do all the fucking legwork for you. But... <laughs> Seriously, though, this is really good. Uh, you want to see somebody like Charles Bronson just step outside of his comfort zone a little bit? This is a good movie to do that, especially this period, 1980. Wilford Brimley, you name check, Bruno Kirby. Now, Ed Harris had been, at this point, George Romero's go-to guy. Knight Riders, a couple of his small roles. He just started branching out post-George Romero. And, you know, for people who are of age... Let's say Ed Harris at this time period was playing really tricky guys. He was really playing fucking villains. And, you know, he was really doing it quite well. You know, he had this edge. He had a little bit of Al Pacino-esque to him when he had hair. You know, because you remember Ed, early Ed Harris, he was doing the shoddy lines kind of thing. Like, well, you know, <laughs> as I said before, What's the little Christopher Walken kind of thing? Because some Al Pacino has that Christopher Walken thing in there, which Christopher Walken stole from Al Pacino. But Ed Harris did this kind of thing, too, when he was young. And Michelle Lerner, who we like, and Burt Remsen, Ken McMillan, who was in Dune. I mean, it's a lot. Charles Cipher, a, a guy who was in a lot of early John Carpenter films, is in this. So great cast, good cast. You know why? These guys were chosen for their looks and their work. I like I like when a, you watch a film and somebody obviously looked at somebody's body of work and they said, oh, hey, these guys, these guys were really good, this kind of role, this kind of role, this kind of role, not this type, but this kind of role. So 
Yeah, borderline highly recommended. You, you folks should check it check it out because all in all, hey, you know what? Our our favorite actor is dead now, and it's time to like check into some earlier movies, mm-hmm. except for Pablo Blanco. Yeah, yeah. So in between those two crappy ones that I didn't want to address, which was Capablanco and Death Hunt, but if you need to say anything, go ahead. I don't know. It's sort of like Capablanco's uh, J. Lee Thompson, who actually does well by Bond. For the most part, yeah. Bond. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. yeah, we have Dominic Sanda. We like Dominic Sanda, right? Right. And Fernando Rey, Camila Spar. I mean, there's a good cast going on here. But it's like, you know what I'm going to say? It's Casablanca. And it's a remake. Yeah, okay. I didn't like Casablanca in there, so fuck you. Yeah, but <laughs> I can hear that. I mean, it's okay. No, I'm I serious. love Bogart, but that's not one of my favorite films of his by far. Thank, thank you for saying that. That's what I truly meant. I'm sorry, folks. I, I, I was a little harsh there. It's true. I like Bogart movies. It's not one of my favorites. I like, what is it, Dark Passage, the one where you see through his eyes through the first, better than Casablanca, so that should say something. <laughs> Actually, I wouldn't mind the Humphrey Bogart show because we actually haven't dealt with a lot of these people from that period. And that's something I would love to do. Seriously. So Capablanco is, from what I know, again, what do I know? But from what, I, what I've read is Charles Bronson sitting around with a couple of guys who are in his tight circle saying, I want to do something different. Okay. And then them telling him, I don't think Jill Island should be in this. <laughs> and he was very upset. True. He was very upset that this happened. But they said, look, we'll get Dominique Sanda, who's really popular at the time. We'll get Fernando Rey. And we're going to redo Casablanca. Except that they go to the island where they go to shoot this. And it just didn't really work. Because as as much as as much as he was drawn to it, because of the lack of violence, and I think Bronson felt that there was like he was associated with violence. He was associated with this machismo thing, and I don't blame him because I think deep down he he wanted to be an actor, you know. Mm-hmm. And I I think all hands aboard. The director wasn't up to it, and maybe budgetary reasons they weren't up to it, and so it was like yeesh. <laughs> <laughs> so 1982, we returned to Death Wish, but. But did you did you want to mention Death Hunt? Go ahead if you need to. Yeah, so having been together in the Dirty Dozen in '67, so we have uh, Lee Marvin and Charles Bronson reunited, 1981, with Angie Dickinson. Talk about mm. <laughs> and Carl Weathers, Ed Lauder again, Andrew Stevens, everybody's uh, Cinemax Softcore. Uh... Yes. <laughs> So this is directed by Peter Hunt, who did Honor Majesty's Secret Service. So we know we're going to get something good, right? No. <laughs> so, a uh, strange movie. Talk about movies that don't work. <sighs> you got this. I know, right? I'm sorry. But you have this kind of cast, right? And it's like you're reuniting guys for like who like made their careers on like a seminal film. And then you have Charles Bronson as a, an American trapper. Organizing dog fights. There's a reason for audiences <laughs> to stay away. And then a white German shepherd or dog gets injured during a dog fight. Enter Ed Lauder playing customary scumbag villain. And then we have like Lee Marvin as the Royal Committee mounted police who's a humane guy who likes animals. I'm like, 
This is the fucking mistake from the word go. Where's who Michael Vick? Bank... <laughs> it's like, who, who bankrolls this kind of picture? Oh, dark finding is suddenly cool? No. Michael Vick. was. <laughs> Stop. And, no, I'm saying, like, it wasn't a big hit. People were expecting these two guys against a man or these two guys against, you know, whatever. And I think when people went to the theaters and they said, Remember Charles Bronson's condoning dog fighting? <laughs> and guys against him are like saying it's no good. Uh, yeah, well, what's wrong with that? Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. And it was like, okay, so how much wine did you have tonight, Charles? <laughs> so on to Death Wish 2. Yeah, so 1982. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. Well, you're going to meet him. Michael Winner returns for a much nastier reworking of his decade prior original. This time, Kersey's out in L.A., not Chicago like they hinted at last time around, with his still autistic but at least emotionally improving daughter and wifey Jill Ireland in tow as his TV reporter girlfriend. One day, they're out at the park in a gang of scumbags, which includes three black guys, one being Larry Fishburne of all people, and two of the weirdest-looking white fucks you've ever seen, mug him in broad daylight while he's on the line for ice cream of all things. <laughs> you're fucking choked on that one. <laughs> When he realizes they distracted him and took his wallet, not just the cash in his hand, he gives chase and beats on one of them in an alley, but he's not the one with the wallet, so he lets him go and forgets about it. Now, this is the film where the assault and rapes get really nasty. Since they have his wallet and are now pissed off at him besides, they break into his house where they have his way with a horse-faced maid who has a smoking body, by the way, before Bronson comes home with his daughter. They beat him down and kidnap her for the same treatment, which leads to a botched escape attempt that leaves her impaled on the railing outside their warehouse hideout. Mm. Both of these are some really rough scenes that sit through. I will totally admit that. I'm very uncomfortable with both scenes. I mean, much more so than the first one, even. From here on out, though, it's pure revenge. But unlike Death Wish's more universal man versus the crime-ridden city motif, this is straight up, let's get the dirtbags that pulled this on me. L.A.'s commissioner, Tony Franciosa, pulls in New York City's Vincent Gardenia from last time around for expert advice, but he's covering his own ass for letting Kersey go, so it's not exactly a straightforward situation. Gardenia gives Ireland the scoop on Kersey, which means the engagement is off, then tries to save him from getting gunned down during one of his operations against the baddies, which gets Gardenia shot to death instead and asking Kersey for vengeance in the bargain. There's a whole unnecessary sidebar where the last surviving baddie gets the criminally insane option, so Bronson has to make fake IDs and sneak into the nuthouse to kill him, and it's all over but the shouting. Jimmy Page delivers a terrible soundtrack, but it's still pretty watchable. They film on location in L.A. ghettos. They use local freaks for color, so the early rape and murder scenes aside, it's actually another good one. It is pretty hilarious. It takes a lot of points. What's your takes? I know you hate this one. Well, yeah, filming on, uh, filming in California, uh, actually on location... And they, they got that right, as opposed to the exaggerated hype of the what they thought New York locations were going to be like, as far as thugs go, as far as supporting cast. Uh, they got that right. What I didn't like was the, and you just mentioned it too, the, the viciousness of the attacks yeah. uh, on the women. The woman who played the maid, for example, the, the, Lat- the Latin woman, she has said in interviews that Michael Winner was a real fucking dick. He was like, he was like, if he, if he was still working, he wouldn't be working. Yeah, he was like really just pushing it, pushing that envelope you know, in prep and like pushing that envelope with the actress and her. It was almost like she was being assaulted on camera. And it's hard to watch. It's probably one, you know, I, I mentioned this about an hour ago. It's, it's, you know, it's just even worse. These, these, it's not porn. It's not hardcore, but this, and there's been a lot of brutal 
rape scenes in exploitation films. But in a major exploitation film, few are as, if we have a couple more sequels to come too, but, but few are as hard to watch as the two that are featured in this film. It's really rough. And there's no reason for actually, I mean, when it comes down to it, it's like, come on. Yeah, this is the yeah. last house on the left. This isn't true. I mean, it's been that, in your grave. This is actually a mainstream it, picture. This is a mainstream picture, and I'm gonna say this: the whole the whole gig with a filmmaker with an auteur is is for someone who could who could suggest through suggestion through you know uh, you know we could lead up to something and cut away, and one or two shots can see can say so much more. Mm-hmm than showing two to three minutes of a, a brutal onslaught where which will, will, will remain in your memory for a long, long time. You know, as a, you know, I'm not talking about like a Pasolini who's there for shock and 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 it's much, much more. But we're talking about like somebody who like Michael Witter who was there for something else than the delivery of the story. He he had this little kink thing going on with him. That which was apparent to me before I even read the shit about him or read the stuff by his his cast members. It's like, dude, you don't have to really go to these levels. And for this reason, I have a problem with this movie. But we have a lot of interesting people in this film. So yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's what I got to say about that movie. <laughs> so next up, 1983, 10 to midnight. Without a question, Jay Lee Thompson's Shining Hour. When was the last time you did it with a girl? Last month? Last year? Never. I won't listen to your filth. This obviously gay guy, a Gene Davis, whose few credits include, wait for it, cruising, is cast as an ersatz Richard Speck in this hilarious slasher-slash-bronson film crossover, which, unlike Chuck Norris's Silent Rage, actually works on two levels. This lisping guy, who gets a long bedroom seat putting on moisturizer and aftershave with lots of shots of his crotch and tiny bikini panties, and has a poster of himself in a karate gi on the wall, likes to go around buck-naked, stabbing girls who reject his clumsy attempts at getting laid. He's shown getting coffee splashed in his face by the first victim when he unzips her dress in the office copy room, but you never get the sense of some sexual dysfunction or revenge against women here. It's more like he's blatantly trying to make them react and justify his subsequent murder attempt. Hello, someone help this guy out of the closet, will you? During a police grilling he's already cleverly alibied himself for, Bronson pulls out this giant thermos with a rubber dildo in and shows it to the guy. What's this for? It's for jacking off, isn't it? The cast is filled with notable character actors like the ubiquitous Jeffrey Lewis, Tango and Cash Knight, The Comet, Salem's Lot, Wilfred Brimley again, saucy Lisa Eilbacher of the Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man and Hardy Boys TV shows, star of dozens of 90s softcore thrillers, Andrew Stevens, John Travolta's wife, Kelly Preston, and two videos. Video vixens of the era, Ola Ray. Speaking of women as beards, she was Michael Jackson's girlfriend in the Thriller video. And Gina Thomasina, Playboy Playmate, most famous for being one of those hot bimbos every young male lusted after, yours truly inclusive, in all those ZZ Top videos back in the day. There's a more ridiculous than usual party scene, a great temper tantrum thrown in front of his lawyers when Bronson plants evidence on the guy, and a whole childish tit-for-tat when Bronson gets bounced from the force for it, and they trade little home invasion-style surprises as they tail each other around and make each other miserable. It's almost like the silent partner in that respect. These guys are a little too much of each other's asses. Then it ends on this hilarious sequence where he's chasing the Albuquerque down a main street, buck naked, surrounded by cops, and gives this ridiculous bug-eyed speech about getting progressively more excited here. How they, all they could do is throw him in the bug house, but I'll be back. Then you'll hear from me. You and the whole fucking world. No, we won't. Blam. 
Bronson shoots him right in the head in front of everybody. But what's truly great about this film is that you could, if drunk, approach it as a serious, if super sleazy, slasher police procedural. But you're more likely to be laughing your ass off at the over-the-top dialogue and Davis's super obvious gayness. So what's your take? <laughs> I love this film. Well, I love this film. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 I I think this is where the I don't know what to say. I I I think this is one of the movies where Charles Bronson said, "Okay, J. Lee Thompson, I I trust you. This is a really fucked up movie. I don't do these kind of things, but let's go for it." Because everything you said is true. It's just a weird psychosexual smorgasbord of deviant stuff even Charles Bronson's dialogue is not the usual from him it's very spicy it's very sexually charged uh-huh. and it's we haven't heard him speak lines like this before you will one more time though at the end of his career yeah <laughs> I know yeah I know but, but I'm saying my other favorite again <laughs> yeah but we, we really haven't heard him speak lines like this before oh no this Gene Davis guy is really interesting because, yes, I get it. He hasn't had many credits. But he's like, you know, sometimes people come out of the woodwork and then they disappear and like. Or come out of the closet. Like, <laughs> could be. I'm not going there. Okay. But I'm saying this guy came out of nowhere and suddenly he was like, wow, where did this <laughs> twisted fuck come from? Because he, he not only really did really good with this role it's a b movie for crying out loud with an a-list actor yep for c-level studio he's working for canon now right so it's like so we got lots of things going on and yet and yet this guy comes out of nowhere playing the villain with with like a pretty empty cv of credits and he's like well I'm going to give it my all. He goes beyond oh, no. chewing up the scenery. He's like eating a sidewalk. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? You believe people like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, a really good movie. It's highly recommended for most both, as yes. well as many, many others. So there you go. Yeah, it's actually my favorite Bronson film, uh, along Ouch. with the other one. Yeah, the other one that we'll mention eventually. So next up. The Evil That Men Do. Gee, you think it'll be another J. Lee Thompson job? That's right. Here we have one of the most brutal films in Charles Bronson's entire ove. One that wound up with some major rewrites and produced by and filmed in Mexico. So you get the idea we're not talking high quality or even typical Bronson here. Despite some familiar character actors, exploitation regular Raymond and Jacques of Cotton Comes to Harlem. Here looking like a crust between O.J. and Bill Cosby. Super Beast and Die Sister Dies Antoinette Bauer. Smallville's Lionel Luther, John Glover. And Swarm in the Sentinels, Jose Ferrer. This was pretty grim. It's actually about bewitched, grumpy ad exec Larry Tate, or some nobody who's a dead ringer for him, who's such a great master at torture that the South American country's government he lives in keeps him protected, and he gets to sell his expertise to the highest bidder. So after electrocuting an investigative journalist by sticking electrodes on his balls and leaving him hanging buck naked on a metal trapeze, whose personal dungeon of pleasure they pull that scenario from, I gotta ask? Brunson's retired CIA man is brought in to bring the sicko to justice. In the end, he doesn't really accomplish much beyond rallying the locals he's been working his wares on to pay him back in kind. It's nasty in tone through and through. Nobody comes out of this one looking or feeling good. It's actually the worst sort of revenge film in that respect, and doesn't even have the flair of 70s or tourism and style to make all the darkness seem palatable or worthwhile. Coming in the mid-80s like it does, it just feels garish, cheap, and mean-spirited. I hate this fucking movie. 
Sometimes it's really hard to follow you. Uh, <laughs> I hate this fucking movie. Uh, but Ten to Midnight, having been a shocker for Charles Bronson, coming after Death Wish 2, which was a shocker from Charles Bronson, we have The Evil That Men Do, which is a shocker from Charles Bronson. <laughs> the guy was on a fucking roll for two to three years making movies like, holy shit, man. Um, yeah, I mean, J. Lee Thompson is a respected filmmaker. He's done, like, some really interesting stuff, and it's nasty. If you thought the two aforementioned films were, had moments that were like, yeesh, then this one did. But it's sort of like, oh, yeah, Death Wish 2 had moments that called for it. Tender Midnight had moments that called for it. Even that men do, which is, like, mean-spirited, nasty. <laughs> and, and it kind of made you think. So how long is he going to stick with this kind of thing? Because now he's in he's another sea change, if, if, if I can say so. Yeah. Now Charles Bronson has come from, like, icon to, like, the sea change of being this, like, fucking... It's almost like M-rated, unrated revenge thrillers. He's become yeah. this dark assassin, like I hinted at in the opening. A dark assassin revenge thrillers. Like, this is leading the way for the slaughter-type pictures that are coming. So next up, Death Wish 3. It's the final Michael Winter Bronson job, where Bronson's invited back by an old army buddy or something, who's Martin Balsam of all people, to what looks like the South Bronx, but it's supposed to be Brooklyn, where rather unbelievably a bunch of old white folks live in a tenement building in the middle of a bombed-out area. He just happens to show up after a home invasion, and the cops haul him in for it, leading to an offense-style grilling and beatdown, and a lockdown with a bunch of over-the-top central casting thugs, the most bug-eyed and overacting of which singles him out when when I get out, I'm going to kill an old lady in your honor. Somehow the nasty lieutenant who gave him all the shit in the first place suddenly changes his tune and wants Kersey to clean up the city for him. And the guy's like, yeah, sure, why not? Never mind, just arrest me, beat the crap out of me, let me fend for myself against all these lowlifes. Yeah, let's do this. <laughs> from here it gets really silly, with the cops confiscating protective weapons from the residents while muggings, beatings, rape, and murders escalate with no reprisal. In the end, it leads to Bronson setting crazy booby traps in their apartments, old folks running around heavily armed and hunting down this army of cartoon thugs who go around hanging out of cars and motorcycles, shooting people and firebombing their apartments like something out of an Italian Mad Max ripoff. The funniest part? Sort of pretty Deborah Raffin of the Sentinel on the South of Paradise decides for no particular reason to come on to a 60-plus Bronson because, you know, he's so hot, and balls him inside about eight minutes at the midpoint of the film, which means she's now an immediate target for our baddies. So when he leaves her in that crappy Oldsmobile, the same night, mind you, she pops out of nowhere, fucks him, and then they go out for cigarettes or something. Leaves her in the crappy Oldsmobile at the top of a decidedly minor hill to get the pack of gum or something. They pop up out of nowhere, punch her in the face, and drop the car into neutral. It rolls down the hill about 15 miles per hour before T-boning another driver, which after about three seconds, for no reason whatsoever, explodes in a big-ass mushroom cloud of flame like they dropped a missile on the damn thing. No laws of momentum or physics that could possibly justify this enormous explosion. In the end, Bronson walks off into a street full of cars and tenants that are all afire, baggage in hand, to the knowing wink of the lieutenant. Funky music plays. Everyone exits the theater laughing. Keep an eye out for Tennis Press and Esquire's pal Alex Winter as one of the thugs in that crappy 90s Star Trek's Marina Sirtis as the rape victim. What a way to start a career, huh? <laughs> so what's your take? Yeah, it's it's one of those kind of movies where you start to show lack of budget, <laughs> and and the the DP wasn't uh, John Stanier or wasn't really up to snuff, and hell, even Michael Winner edited the thing under the pseudonym. 
So I, I guess maybe they, they took the movie away from him, or he came back in and hid under the, the cover of night. <laughs> I re-edit this thing. It's like everybody's doing this movie. It's a pseudonym. Screenplays by Michael Edmonds, who's actually really Dan Jacoby. I mean, it's just, it's <laughs> Jimmy Page actually did the music again, and you know, and it's like, yeah, yeesh. I was wondering if it was leftovers from two. It could have been. I I, I don't know. Interesting cast. You, you kind of name-checked them. Really, not a movie I liked. And not the, not the last of the Death Wish movies I disliked. Yeah, it's the last fun one, though, if you want to call them that. So, 1986, Murphy's Law. And it's another J. Lee Thompson cop film with Bronson as a drunken cop with a stripper ex-wife who gets framed by a crazy woman who goes around killing everyone he's involved with. And that means a lot of killings before the film wraps. He winds up thrown in jail and handcuffed to an obnoxious teen carjacker, a Kathleen Wilhoyt, whose biggest credits are Witchboard and teen sex comedy Private School, who's so amazingly foul-mouthed you think they grabbed her from far more modern times. At the end of it, he threatens to wash her mouth out with soap. You wish you did that in the opening credits. Unbelievable. The two of them wind up breaking jail, commandeering a helicopter, and failing at attempts to hide out with acquaintances on both ends, but they find nothing but trouble as they pursue the real killer and try to clear his name. This one's another one that's been long unavailable in this country. There was an early DVD release, but that went out of print many years back and has been seen going for absurd prices since. I actually got it dirt cheap off a UK version, and it just looks pretty good for a film that's vintage. Yeah, it's not one of his greats, but there's no reason for that. It should be out. It's actually not a bad film at all, but with the main issue here being the female lead, who looks sort of like Sarah Jessica Parker with the obnoxiousness of Jennifer Aniston, but more down-market and more foul-mouthed than a South Jersey mobster. I mean, I love Carol Lombard. I understand she was pretty salty in real life, but this is a whole different level, and the crass patois runs non-stop throughout the picture. Crazy Carrie Snodgrass does a surprisingly convincing job as the athletic, psychotic murderess. And Bronson is Bronson. If you did canon films or Bronson's work during this era, you should be pleasantly surprised by this one. Just don't blame me if you have to suppress the urge to slam Will Hoyt's head into a brick wall repeatedly within her first 10 or 15 minutes of screen time and realize there's a lot more of her cussing to come before credits roll. Oh, you know, this movie features uh, number one psychopath, Carrie Snodgrass, as uh, the villain. And uh, Carrie Snodgrass came to uh, notoriety, Diary of a Mad Housewife. What yes. are those early counterculture movies? Golden Globe, Academy Award nominations, blah, blah, blah. But she was apparently a real nut job. She was Neil Young's chick for years. She was Neil Young's, like, girlfriend. And she would sporadically appear and disappear. She was in The Fury, the Brian De Palma movie, where uh, Kirk Douglas and Andrew Stevens. That was terrible. Telekinetic twins. She was in Peel Rider, the the Clint Eastwood thing, like 19, you know, we're talking like five-year increments. She was in Murphy's Law, which we're talking about now. And then... She really wouldn't appear much, not too much television either, just oddball things. She was in an X-Files, but she really wasn't in much. And then she passed away in the uh, late 80s, and she was known to be a person of interest in the world of psychokinesis as well. I don't know if you know that. Uh, So, as well as being on Nutjob, she apparently (laughs) communicated with the dead, is what I'm trying to get at. And uh, maybe with people from other places. Interesting. So, I mean, Neil Young, her? No, I get it. You know, but she passed away uh, probably at a young age. Angel Tompkins is in this thing, you know, from 
the teacher series of films. And Janet McClatchen, who we had a thing for briefly. Lawrence Tierney's in this thing, God knows. This is a weird movie. This is, I like it. It's probably the last of the Charles Bronson wacko oddball movies he did for Canon before he would start gaining more stable ground, I, I, I think I would have to say. Yeah. Active Vengeance I haven't seen, so I'm going to skip that one. Let's just say something there. Active Vengeance was an okay picture. It was an HBO picture. It was, it was about a guy who was a union boss. So it was more of a chance for Charles Bronson to play uh, Joseph Yablonski. There were, he, it was a, he was a union broker, and the family were supporting Ellen Bernstein, Hoyt Axton. We had Ellen Barkin. Keanu Reeves is in this thing, believe it or not. It was like family of dock brokers and union brokers who were going against corruption and also going against the corruption of the police and FBI. It was a true story. So he shaved, and so I guess he looked older than his years around this time. Didn't do much for him, although, all told, he got decent reviews for it. So next up, 1987, Assassination. Bronson returns to Love and Bullets territory, only this time, wife Jill Island is the new first lady, and much like Hillary Clinton, she's a total bitch. Perennial second unit director Peter R. Hunt, whose few actual directorial credits include the boring George Lazenby entry in the Bond series, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and we actually spoke to the Bond series twice previously, the second time being a two-parter, a completely forgotten Burt Reynolds film, Rough Cut, and this, or if it's a bit of a bumpy ride, somewhere between good-naturedly amusing, all this feminism versus common sense back and forth between Bronson and Ireland, Bronson's cute Asian partner, Jan Gam Boyd, who's always chipper and trying to get in the guy's pants throughout, and a bit dry as if it were more of a sexed-up TV film or something. Bronson and Boyd are Secret Service assigned to duty protecting the newly elect president's decidedly outspoken first lady. She's horrible, ignoring every suggestion they give, ultimately kvetching and talking down to them, treating them like servants beneath her, while pulling the feminism card and demanding Bronson, who for the most part is quietly respectful and just trying to get her to listen to reason, leave her presence, going through a number of ruses to ditch security throughout, even after she gets shot in the first few minutes. But the real joke about all this one is, and it's a spoiler, gasp! The reason she's so bitchy is she hasn't been getting any. I'm not kidding. The president can't get it up, so she's planning on serving him with divorce papers, and his various Mitch McConnells, Paul Ryans, and Steve Bannons are determined to bump her off so the scandal doesn't prevent his re-election for next term. And she's dumb enough to keep reporting in their whereabouts to him as they make a cross-country run. I tend to lean towards liking this film a lot more than most folks, particularly because of Boyd's inexplicable and boisterous intentions towards old man Bronson. There's a nice scene where she's barely covered up there in one of her phone calls to him. Nice body. But even without her, there's a lot to like here. There's a lot of good-natured humor enlivening matters along the way, like the ridiculous dancing hipster disguise Ireland adopts at one point in an attempt to lose Bronson. And while she's perfectly horrid at the start of the film, with her obnoxious imperiosity and outmoded gender politic, as they spend more time together and he manages to keep saving her ass, the two start to warm to each other. And it's pretty apparent that the couple were having a good time on this one. There's a definite warmth between them that starts increasing as we go along. No question this is not one of the go-to films in Bronson's Ove, and it's definitely got flaws in tone, but it's got a generally good vibe to it underneath that carries over to our three main performers, and that's why I really do kind of like this film quite a bit for lighthearted 80s action fare. What's your take? No, I, I can't disagree with you. I agree with you 100% on this one. I agree with everything you said. Yeah, there's, there's the amiability about it. It's it's like, it's hard not to like, you know, and, and yeah, she, you know, with Jill Ireland's, I wouldn't say limited range, she she did have a, you know, she had a range. She was working before she met him, but this worked. And so 
the beginning of this, she she keys into this thing, bitchy Hillary Clinton kind of thing. <laughs> I hate to say that, but um, but it's true. <laughs> but, but but then as the movie goes on, they they sort of clicked, and yeah, she looks sort of like doable, and then sort of like yeah, yummy, and then you might put her on a list, and <laughs> and they they work well together, and which is like it's it's like you know I have to say it's truthfully. No shit aside. This is one of those movies where you can actually see why he wanted to cast his wife with him. Yo, in, in so many films, because this is one of the few films where whoever it was, in this case, was J. Lee Thompson, who he's worked with many times. It just worked. It's like, this is not straining credibility too much. You can actually see these two characters working like this. And you can see the affection, which is actually was true life affection. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a fun one. So same year, actually, Death Wish for the Crackdown. Last and least of the Death Wish films with J. Lee Thompson taking over from Michael Winner and delivering a darker, flatter, and far less appealing film than the last three. Kate Lenz, who I always liked in films like Sanctuary of Fear, which was a Father Brown TV movie that really needs to see the release on DVD or Blue, Headhunter, and the Burt Reynolds-Teresa Russell film Physical Evidence, is once again inexplicably Bronson's girlfriend. The problem is her teenage daughter, presumably from a prior relationship, who takes one hit of crack and dies inside of the first few minutes. The Expector Revenge thing gets finished within another ten minutes or less, so can we get out of this movie already? Nope. He gets blackmailed by some rich fuck who also lost a daughter to too much of a sniffy, so he wants Bronson to wipe out the entire drug trade in Los Angeles, for which he spent a small fortune gathering names and weapons. You could have got them for free. Just waiting for the right schmo to come along and do it for him. The entire tone of this one's wrong, dropping everything about vigilantism, pro or con, and instead coming off like some Nancy Reagan preachathon about the evils of drugs. Every other line is, it's not your fault, you didn't raise her own, it's those damn drugs, or how many kids do you kill with this shit? It gets absurd after a bit, like the local D.A.R.E. program decided to make a half-assed action film. And I do mean half-assed. While there's a little infiltration going on as he makes his way to each target's place before pulling a hit or getting the next bit of relevant info, it's hardly Bond or even Elias for that matter. If anything, this one's more akin to evil that men do in tone and sheer nastiness, which is fitting, because despite coming out through the auspices of canon and pulling Soon Teco from the Chuck Norris missing in action films to be a local cop here, it shares the same Mexican producer as that earlier film, so it's likely he had a say in steering this one straight off the rails into mean-spiritedness once again. If you like Death Wish, you won't like this film. If you like the more colorful and silly canon Death Wish 2 and 3, you definitely won't like this film. Even if you found some affection for evil that men do, you probably still won't like this film. In fact, this film just kind of sucks. It sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Also, this is the waning years of canon now. This is like where even most of their war horses like Chuck Norris and and Michael Dudikoff have really jumped ship. And, you know, they're, they're just, this is canon on life support, and it's just not working. Messenger of Death is next, right? Yep, Messenger of Death, 1988. One of J. Lee Thompson's occasional misfires, this one's about crazy Mormons with nine wives and two dozen kids who wind up in a blood feud when one's family is gunned down. But is the ostensible guilty party really the culprit? Of course not. Just like in the real world, it always comes down to the corporatocracy and its boundless greed and quest for power. A badly-aged Trish Vanderveer, who less than a decade earlier still seemed kind of fuckable on the hearse, here looks bloated and sickly as a local newspaper reporter, who Bronson, himself a major city paper reporter, teams up with to get to the bottom of all this. Bloated and sickly. Oh, fuck. <laughs> she sure as hell wasn't fucking well anymore. At least it's not as eye-rollingly painful as witness, but all this Mormon nonsense. <laughs> 
That's is a real drag on matters. And the small Colorado. Wait, 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 wait. You wouldn't fuck a bloated and sickly looking chick? Are you crazy? No. <laughs> <laughs> the girl looked like she was on, uh, she was got a disease or something. What the hell happened to her? At least it's not as ironic and painful as witches. <laughs> But all this Mormon nonsense is a real drag on matters, and the small Colorado mountain town atmosphere is just kind of meh. It feels like a Hallmark or a Lifetime film, but without the cloying message about family, God, and how your husband or any other man is probably a serial killer hiding under your bed. Pooh. We actually have a friend whose wife confided in us that she was getting spooked by all those, quote, gripping movies on Lifetime to the point where her husband actually made her stop watching the channel. I mean, she was actually like, hiding out, terrified in her room when the doorbell rang, grabbing kitchen knives, stuff like that. And the story that broke the camel's back was when he came home one night, and she was scared of him. Tonight on Lifetime, my husband, the rapist serial killer. Well, you know, you know, I'll tell you something. Uh, uh, not to digress, but the missus was watching those things a lot. Did she come after but, you with a knife? No, but <laughs> was two, she hiding? Two years ago, she got this thing. I'm like, I like these. Oh, so I'm like, okay, I'll watch one with you. I'll watch two. I'm like, hey, these are really sick. Yes, they are. I'm like, why are you watching this? Oh, I like this. They're sick and they got an agenda. Yeah, I'm like, you know, the woman's kidnapping some woman's child, stealing a woman's child. Guys, like, the, the guys are usually portrayed as, like, Monsters. Having multiple, yeah, multiple wives and sickos. Mm-hmm. Why would you watch this stuff? There, it's it's not even a feminist agenda. It's a lesbian agenda. It's like, I hate men and you should too. Like, what? And you're talking about these people, like, they're, it's their husband. It's not some stranger or whatever the hell. Like, mm-hmm. really? <laughs> well, see, they, they haven't met us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a horrible channel. I hated it. I actually had a friend in college that was in the radio at the time. And he got an internship, and I was like, where are you going? This guy was like an Italian guy that was literally like, you know, three foot seven and about 85 pounds, long hair guy, and it took like this. And he's like, where are you going? Oh, I'm not going to intern at Lifetime. I'm like, are you crazy? I might never see you alive again, man. They go watch out for the butcher knives. Why wouldn't the butcher knives? But you know who has a career doing movies for them is Fred Olin Way. Yes, he said that. <laughs> Maybe that's why the yes, are so yes. sick. Well, uh, well he, he works under a variety of pseudonyms, but no, he told me this. For uh, all the TNA pushing hardcore softcore films he does, <laughs> he's got that side. <laughs> he's got that side. You know, he, he said one of the biggest things he did was this fucking Christmas movie from them a couple of years ago. And I was like, really? I saw that one. I said it was very sweet. It was one of the, one of the most... You mean she didn't un- have to divorce her rapist husband who kidnapped her kid and uh, <laughs> held her hostage? And- no. All right, so what's next, Kinjite? Yeah, so anyway, I was going to say, if, if you're going to skip one film we talked about tonight, this was the one. So, Kinjite, Forbidden Subjects, 1989. Aside from 10 to Midnight, this has always been one of my favorite Charles Bronson films. I know why. Jay Lee Thompson drags <laughs> us through hardcore cruising territory when super uptight Vice Squad man Bronson, who freaks out the very idea of his daughter heavy petting on a date, discovers some underage recruiting going on by the local sleazy pimp, who he goes after with his usual gusto. There's a whole side story going on where during the days when Japanese could get away 
away with the whole groper train thing. This young businessman gets horny watching a random groper get a girl off, but she doesn't make a scene out of that cultural shame thing they used to live by over there. So when he's transferred to the U.S., he tries it out to very different results. And of course, the victim is Bronson's daughter, which brings in this whole angle about racism and understanding. But don't sweat that. It never gets too heavy-handed. The ironic part of all this is that the Japanese molester's daughter then gets scouted by that same scummy pimp and goes full-on hardcore territory. I kept waiting for George C. Scott or Big Dick Black to show up. After a whole lot of sleeves and violence, Bronson gets the kid back. But of course, she's too traumatized by working the stroll to go on. So despite getting away with it, the molester gets punished in extremists for his cultural faux pas. And speaking of the dark, ironic comeuppance, guess what happens when Bronson catches up with the pimp? That's right. He makes sure he gets locked up with, quote, sexually aggressive lifers. When I'm through with this bitch, she's going to walk out of this cell block wearing heels and a strapless. <laughs> There's a weird cast in this one. Like Peggy Lipton from the Mod Squad as Bronson's wife, Danny Trejo as one of the pimp's new boyfriends, and Charles in charge as Nicole Eggert as one of the pimp's connections. Make no mistake, this one is sleazy as fuck and sure to lose you points with the PC crowd, but do you really care about that bullshit? It's a Bronson film and a great send-off to his career. There's not much further they could have pushed the template without crossing right over into unrated territory, and that and the passing of his wife is probably why he really doesn't do much after this. It's a pretty strange movie. It's pretty pretty bizarre. It's also dark. Very which, dark. Which probably was the reason why he... He kind of slowed down a little bit after this. He did a TV movie. Yes, Virginia, there was a Santa Claus. <laughs> yes, after doing Kinjite, he does the Santa Claus movie. <laughs> right. Yeah, he plays the man who 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 was a newspaper man and who wrote an editorial after reading these letters from women, uh, young girls. And he shoots down Santa because he's a sleazy pimp and he doesn't deserve to live. No, nothing <laughs> like that. And then he did this. He did this TV movie for Canadian television called The Seawall, based on the, the Jack London thing, where he played Captain Larson, or Christopher Reeve, Mark Singer. Interesting. Wait, you said it's Jack London. Does he have to eat his dog? No, 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 no. no. Yeah, it's a seafaring thing. Okay. Uh, that London. was 93, but again, you know, he's, he's doing different stuff. He did The Indian Runner, which is probably for Sean Penn as director, but he played the father in that. It was probably the most dramatic thing he had done in a long time. He played the dad to, to Viggo Mortensen and David Morris, two extremely sicko fuck actors. Dennis Hopper was in this, Benicio Del Toro. Very heavy, almost David Lynchian kind of film, directed by Sean Penn. Surprising to see a older than his years looking Charles Bronson. And this and there was wait one more death wish yes so i have nothing to say about that one i didn't even see it <laughs> after the fourth one yeah alan goldstein yes i know Ooh, <laughs> alan goldstein who looking at his cv didn't do much <laughs> he um i don't know from whence he came um i don't know what studio oh 21st century film corporation this was after Cannon crashed and burned, one of the Globus brothers, Monaco maybe, came out with this uh, 21st Century Distribution uh, Film Corporation, 21st Century Film Corporation Distribution, and they didn't last more than a year. So their stuff got sold to Trimark, which used to be MGM. I know it gets complicated. So this guy named Alan Goldstein came along, and he was awarded the last of the Death Wish films. A visibly uh, heavier Charles Bronson, 
Not sure what was going on there. His wife died, so. His wife died, could be. Yeah, we had, still had a decent cast. We had Leslie Ann Dow, Michael Parks, Perennial TV, Shlemiel, Saul Rubinek was in this. But just wasn't what the death wish we were all used to. I mean, Charles is walking slower. He came back to New York City. Michael Parks is already older in this film. Played like a mobster type, trying to, you know, throw muscle around. It just really wasn't a Death Wish movie we were used to. And it died. Didn't do any any money in the theaters. It made $500,000 and disappeared. Which, you know, in movie money is bad. And then since Trimark was MGM, which was 21st Century, which was canon, that's a whole nother ballgame. The last couple of things he did were for television. Yeah. The Family of Cops films. Yes. Do you want to speak of them? Nah, I didn't bother with them. At this point, yeah. Bronson was over for me. Yeah. Yo, Ted Kotcheff, where you know, another journeyman director. You know, he did some good, he did some bad. These are basically veteran police policeman movies. We had pretty much stable cast. Daniel Baldwin, someone named Barbara Williams, Angie Featherstone. I know, it sounds like a porno star. <laughs> There were like three or four of these. They were done for TV, and then they were released on Trimark Video, which people who used to haunt video shops back in the 80s, kind of early 90s, might remember these things. Joe Penny, another familiar TV guy, and Diane Ladd was in the second and third of these. You know, familiar faces, that kind of thing. Now, surprisingly, we didn't all know this, that the last three years while Bronson was appearing in these TV police family dramas, he had already contracted cancer of a form. He had hip surgery in 98, and then he had developed pneumonia, and then he kind of beat Alzheimer's. I'm not quite sure what the story was this, but then he got lung cancer again, and his cause of death is multitudinous. He was buried in Vermont, which that was where he was most happy, and that's where he and Jill lived the longest. They had a home there. That I do know. So a huge career. We had some fun with it, but at the same time, you know, a really interesting actor, really good work, and hats off to him. Yeah, for a guy with such a stone face that came off so icy and was often man a few words, he had a strange presence to him, especially in his earlier stuff that you could actually tell the guy could act. And he got praise for that from certain quarters. Yes. But then, of course, later on, he becomes a bit more of a character, and that's the Bronson we all know and love. And yet there's a lot of fun films in there. You know, yes, they're dark. Yes, they're gritty. Yes, they're sleazy. Some of them are really hard to watch. But there's also enough bizarre 80s, you know, over-the-topness to make them comedies in a way, unintentionally. And other ones are just plain good. You know, stuff like The Mechanic, for example. You know, I always kind of laughed at him but enjoyed his films at the same time. And if you go back to his stuff from the 60s and the early 70s, you're not going to laugh at him. It's more like when he gets into the 80s where it's like, okay, yeah, there he is. Ah, I'm going to blow you away, you scum, you punk, you piece of shit. <laughs> mm, mm. It becomes more funny. But we do enjoy his films. I've definitely got a collection of myself. That's basically all i got to say. How about you? Oh, yeah. I, not a journeyman actor as other people we've covered and will cover. But, yeah, as, as put forward by you, yeah, he's a guy who I think more often than not people assume he is one thing when he was another and he was really actually a good actor and he got stuck doing things but then it was show through through a number of, of films including from noon to three it showed through that you know what he was capable of and then you know we grew up with him we will always remember him as paul Kersey, <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> Good for the better or the worse, right? Uh, it's kind of a sad legacy in a way, but hey. 
Well, yes, yes. Uh, formidably known as Paul Kersey in Death Wish films, <laughs> but, uh, but also for uh, the film with the long forever friend. Forever uh, friend and writer of Rain. Friend, Dirty Dozen, Magnificent Seven, a whole bunch of stuff he did. Mechanic. Yeah, so hats off to you, Charles Bronson. Yeah. So uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our long drawing room chat on Joey Bronson. I think we're going to close out this season on this. And we threw a lot of ideas out there that I think are some really good ones, like Pacino, Van Damme, Humphrey Bogart, Donald Pleasant, Steve McQueen, John Saxon yes. we talked about. So, you know, we'll figure out what we want to do next and go from there. But for now, here's the closure to the season. I think it's a good one. And if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. You can also reach us on podcast. Podbean, third eye cinema Podbean. And we are on iTunes. Uh, look for us under the Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine podcast. If you're particular, it's ID 553402044. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the new improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, uh, anything else you want to close out on? Or? No, thanks for listening all, and uh, we hope you had a good time. And our show is always fun, we hope. And we'll talk to you soon. All right. We're going to do Norris, right? We did Norris. We did ours. Yeah, two weeks ago. <laughs> we'll do it again. <laughs> <laughs>
This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving Towards Life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, and myself. Discuss the beloved, the comedian, the career, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seeds Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. So you're right on time. So what's up this week? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, 
I I have a doctor visit in like two weeks because I don't know what's going on with me. Every time I head out to work, I start I just start pouring sweat. I mean, I know it's super humid, but it's crazy. I mean, it could be nothing. I need to check up anyway, but. I was gonna say it's probably nothing. This I sweat up a storm out there. We go out for walks every morning. It's like, geez, I'm like destroying all my clothes out there. Yeah, it's probably nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I walked about ten blocks to the supermarket this morning, and I was okay when I headed out. Came back, I was like, oh, need another shower. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, the humidity is so bad. I mean, okay, yes, this area has always been a little bit dicey, and they're like Florida or anything. But for the right. East Coast and the North, it's always been kind of dicey. But holy shit, this last year or two has been incredible. I remember one oh. night we went out, and they claimed it was going to rain, and it didn't. But we went out walking in the park like 7 o'clock at night, mm-hmm. and the air was like literally cutting through, I don't know, a block of Olvida or something. So it breathes oh. in, and the sweat was pouring off so badly. I could barely make a lap. The sweat was pouring down so much. It was stinging my eyes. It filled my sunglasses. My shirt and pants were totally soaked. It was like, we oh. barely did anything. So... Okay, know. I'm not alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's just the freaking weather around here. It's insane. But yeah, you know, I have to go get it checked up, get it checked up. But chances are I'll tell you it's nothing. <laughs> Welcome to the, the global warming world. You know, that thing that doesn't exist. <laughs> oh, I see New York had like a blackout yesterday for three hours. I heard that. And you remember the one in the 70s? I'm expecting crime. Remember the Son of Sam was going around at the time and everything? Uh, uh, nothing, as far as I know. But but it, it's just so weird that they actually, you know, it took them three hours to get that going again. Come on, it's New York City. It's 20, it's going to be 2020 soon. Don't they have, like, fail-safes? Fail-safes, exactly. It should all be computerized at this point, and people on this, you know, they probably outsource it to freaking whatever the hell, India or whatever. <laughs> you know how they yeah, do things like and this. Yeah, and I feel bad for people on trains, because those things are just going to stop. And oh, yeah. And AC and the heat. Oh, my God. You are parked there and sweating. <laughs> and dark. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I remember the one in the 70s. I, uh, I worked, so I worked till 9 o'clock. So I think it happened around between 9.30 and 10. And I was uh, living in Brooklyn at the time, still in Coney Island, I think. Right. And I was on the F train going back, elevated platform. Right. And it went out, but they used the emergency power to get us onto 4th Avenue. So if anybody knows where 4th Avenue Brooklyn is, it's like a very high elevated station. And uh, so... Word got out, and I walked down these long stairs, and so there were buses, and there were so many people trying to get on the buses. Right. So what I did was I knew Bay Ridge. I was nowhere near there because I was in Sunset Park, and I just walked back to Coney Island, and I waited for a bus at the uh, the main hub there, Stillwell Avenue. Yeah. I walked all the way back there. So now we're talking about 3 o'clock in the morning. It's a long walk. It's dark. Was it like the Warriors? You know, you trek back to Coney Island? <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I, 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 I saw all these. I didn't see too many people, actually, at Still Avenue. And I saw some cops. They go, like, you waiting for a bus? Yeah. Bus ain't going to come. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was no fun. And I think that was the same week and Elvis died. Right. So that was that was like you know, it's so like the next day like Oh, well, I guess we'll go to the beach, there's no work and then like Elvis Presley died last night. Oh fuck. <laughs> 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 
at least some guys dressed up in like corpse paint and stuff and baseball gear and skates didn't come and start beating on you on the way home. Well, you know. <laughs> so okay, so here's the story about that. You might want to keep this in. So I grew up there, and so when they came out, the Warriors, everybody's like, "Oh, we got to go see this." And I was like, huh? <laughs> I saw that you as know, a kid, and I knew it was like, wow, this is a comic book. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, it was It was just like a huge mystery because, well, no, nothing like that ever existed. Yes, there were gangs. Yes, there were. Of course. There were a lot of them. And, yes, there were a lot of people in these groups. I, you know, I, I wouldn't even say so much gangs. There were groups, groups of kids, and they were bad when there were a lot of them, which is, you know, that's how, that's how stuff happens. So it always is, yeah. But, no, nobody dressed up like that. <laughs> and, and, and the... I, I remember, I remember in New York in the 70s, and it was like a different neighborhood every couple of blocks, and you didn't know what you were getting into. And you kind of had to be careful, like, you know, where you went and who you were with and what time it was and everything else. But that, <laughs> like I said, it was like a comic book. <laughs> well, you know, so, so the thing was, if you so I I used to hang out in the village, you know, when I was into punk. Yeah. And when I was into New Wave, and everybody was still into punk when I was into New Wave, and, you know, so on and so forth. I was a big punk head. And I used to hang out in the Lower East Side. So we're talking after the Warriors, uh, or around that time, you know, 81 yeah. to 83, right. the, you know, the, like the, the last droppings of punk. There were still a lot of bands there. But I was there occasionally, 78, 79, 80. And so that's when you saw people in the street dressing like punks. And they had goths. And you know, this is the early goths. And this is, you know, this is the thing. And, you know, that's, that's where, okay, you saw a bunch of people together. And I think what happened was I think people saw that. And then when, they, when they, Walter Hill conceived this thing, he said, oh, there's probably gangs of bad people everywhere in the Bronx and Coney <laughs> Island that are all dressed in these groups of things. You know, these – that's a really thing I can forget. That's it's a good still, theory. It, it's like, you know, some old man looking at, like I said, like a bunch of punks and goss or something. Or even now it would be like bronies and emo kids or some shit. And okay. thinking, oh, they must all be, you know, deadly thugs or whatever the hell. And transpose like, you know, death wish kind of baddies onto those guys. And there you go. I'm like, really? <laughs> I mean, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I used to think I could take care of myself. I, I was jumped legendarily. Uh, it was my fault okay. by a bunch of guys. I was, uh, I lived in Bensonhurst mm-hmm. in the early to mid 80s, and I would still go and hang out with the boys and uh, we'd have a good time, I'm not going to say. And so I had to work on Monday, right? So it's a Sunday, you know, stupid me. So it's like really late, like 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. I said, oh, the bus isn't going to come. Coney Island's famous for that. I didn't want to get a cab. I'm Louie. I walked on this desolate avenue all the way to Stillwell Avenue to get a train. So I'm walking. This is a, it's, it's actually in my memoirs, which one of these days I'll publish. So I'm walking. I see this car going around, and I'm lit like a firecracker, you know. 
We were drinking and doing all kinds of stuff. And I see the next block, I see a car coming around. It's desolate. You know, I'm like, okay. And I'm walking by your park, and I'm like, maybe you should cross the street because even though I'm stoned, I shouldn't be walking by your park this time of night. Yeah. And then I see no more car. I see like 11 guys crossing the street walking toward me. I'm like, fuck. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I had my nose broken that night. Oof. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing was... I was like, I was fighting, you know, fist, just like the movies. Yeah. You know, you're young, and uh-huh. you're stoned, and you, but, you know, not that stoned. But, uh, you know, I just, you can't, you can't fight your way out of it. You know, one guy grabbed my wallet, and he says, you only got a few dollars. I'm like, ah, oh, shit, don't take my wallet. So my ID, he gave me the wallet, threw the wallet back at me, and they ran away. <laughs> what about that? And I was like. I lucked out there, yeah, and then I, I said, oh, I better walk back to my friend's house, and, like, he's still outside, like, smoking or doing blow or something. Uh-huh. Wow, what happened to you? This <laughs> is all busted up. I said, I just want to go to sleep, man. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, all the shit like that that happened to me was always, believe it or not, grammar school. After that, people calmed down. <laughs> Because we were yeah, later into yeah. the 80s. I went to the hospital the next day, though, because they had to set my nose. Wow. Yeah. Well, you can't tell nowadays if it's worth. <laughs> Thank you. It's many years ago. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, these things did exist, but the comic book, <laughs> yeah, you want to say comic book. Yeah, it's it's an effective movie. I, I can't, you can't take that away from Oh, it's from a great that. movie. It's just so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's well, a lot of Walter Hill's, you know. Switchblade Sisters. <laughs> Well, it's not Walter Hill, it's Jack. But like, here's a movie a lot of people love, which is almost futuristic and almost in that vein. And yet it never worked for me, which is Streets of Fire. Oh, I hated that movie. Yeah, I, I really, you know, isn't that a movie you really want to like? Because Everybody you... loves it. And they're like, oh, Diane Lane, you get this thing with the rock stars. And it's like a West Side Story, but done futuristically. And there's a little bit of Blade Runner. And Michael Perret, who was on a lot of good, you know, that was his height. I really liked Michael Perret back in the day. And, uh, yeah, he was what he was, but he was really good. He knew what he was doing. And um, I really enjoyed his Eddie and the Cruisers. I, I, I would never speak I was going to name check it. When you said his name, I'm like, Eddie and the Cruisers, sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would never speak ill of that movie. That's 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 a great fucking movie. Well, the dog side, <laughs> but it's good. It works. It does. It was a good movie. <laughs> it was, and even the the sequel, like a couple of years too late. But yeah, I was like, no, all right. And and he's 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 still the same. God bless him. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. This there, there, folks, there's a YouTube interview with me and Michael Pare and. Um, a guy that was in both Eddie and the Cruisers films and in Jaws, and uh, he played the Roy Scheider's uh, deputy in Jaws. Um, I forgot his name, which is really funny because, you know, it's 2000 and something, and here's Michael Pare, and he still looks and sounds the same. God bless him. And uh, he does a lot of cheesy things. He was in a couple of U Bowl movies. But hey, <laughs> everybody got to eat, right? I love Uwe Bowl. That guy's amazing. <laughs> Uh, my, uh, my friend Art loves them. Uh, I, I just can't. I can't. Well, they're, I watched horrible. Them. they're horrible. We saw House of the Dead in the theater, and there's a scene that they actually cut out where uh, Clint Howard's there, 
And they're talking about, like, oh, they got to go to the Evil Dead on Worth Day. And he actually had a spell out for the dim bulbs in the audience. Eh, Worth Day means death! We laughed so hard in the theater. Actually, there's a bunch of kids in there. And we were kind of going back and forth, like, you know, heckling the movie as it went on. There's only, like, six people in the whole fucking theater. Uh (laughs) You know, especially when they put the video game screen captures up there from, like, the Sega Genesis, or whatever it was. And we're like, ah! But I'll tell you, they cut it out. And ever since I look at the DVD, I'm like, where's that freaking scene? I miss it. <laughs> but you know, it was great because you got Lois Lane there, the, the hoary Lois Lane from Smallville's in there with the top off. And it, the movie's just unbelievable. And I really got into how horrible yet amusing all these films are because they're all based on video games. I don't know if the guy ever made another movie that wasn't based off a video game. And he made oh, like no. seven he sequels. Did. He, did. And... he did. He did lots of things. He did a lot of. His boxing matches with critics? <laughs> yeah, boxing with critics. But no, he also... Yeah, he did do that. But he also did these... I think like Rampage. I'm like, God, oh, I can't yeah, take I it that. anymore. Well, and Rampage was, actually was a video game, too. <laughs> was it really? Yes. <laughs> See, you're, you're a bit, you, you and the missus are video game people, so, uh-huh. you know, I... I and Far I'm, Cry and all that stuff, though, video games. I was like my uh, my stepson who was here for a couple months uh, right before he left. He got a VR, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, we could chat for a bit. It's been a while, so he he, he got a VR for the uh, PS4. I'm not paying attention, you know, to these things like yeah. I used to be. So he bought it. It's pretty expensive, and so he said, "You want to try it?" Said, yeah, okay. I was like, "Holy fuck! I got a cab on." You know, if you've got a PS4. Get yourself yeah. Persona 5. I tell you, it has replaced Eternal Darkness and Parasite Eve and all those games I used to always go by, Fatal Frames, as the best video game I've ever played. I love that fucking game. But you got to download the uh, original Japanese soundtrack pack off of whatever the hell it is, Xbox Live or whatever the, whatever they run, whatever program that they have there on the, on the PS4. Oh, you could, if I ever do that, you could tell me. But have you tried the VR for these things? Wow. Uh, not for that, but somebody showed me the Oculus Rift around the time it came out. That I wasn't impressed with, but very blocky graphics and things. Well, there's a lot of setup for this thing. You know, and when you buy it, it comes like for, with like a bunch of samples, like kidsy things, mm-hmm. and two free, you know, games. And so, you know, I'm the biggest skeptic, you know. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll try this thing on. And he's like, hold on. It's like, well, I can only see a little bit. It's not clear. I wear glasses. Oh, hold on, hold on. I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, somewhere out there, there's got to be, like, VR from Japan, VR porn. I could totally see how people just, like, you never leave your house. Well, but, that's um, why they're having a population uh, problem there. The prime minister actually issued warnings because all the women are, like, into gay guys. <laughs> they the big yaoi thing. And all the guys are all these, like, total attackers that don't want to leave their apartments. So nobody's actually, like, getting married and having kids. <laughs> Really? Yes. Wow. This is official. Uh, so uh, they have, they're having a crisis over there. Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> now, anyway, you know I, I, I didn't buy one. It's still it's still like five and change or almost five. And so and it's clunky. It's a helmet. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, <laughs> what do we have? Videodrome, et cetera. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, one day should I ever get out of the muck and mire? What is this uh, mystery channel with all this, like, S&M? <laughs> yeah. What mystery channel? Oh. Videodrome. <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know, Cronenberg. Did you see the Rabbit trailer? The no. New, the new one? 
I did not see the new one. Yeah, no, there's a trailer by the Sosa sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, I know, I'm well, not a fan of them. <laughs> we know some people that are, um, but... <laughs> there are a lot of fans. Uh, Tim uh-huh. Lucas. Yeah, uh, he's definitely one. My, my, my buddy Art. Uh, there's quite a few. I, I'm i not a fan. I leave it at that. Yep, same here. The trailer is for the new millennium that we're currently in, mm-hmm. or the current millennium. Um, I have to say it's edgy, and it's... Well, I always had problems with that. Cronenberg's Rabbit. Um, I don't know. I liked it. Got, I was cool with Mary I, Chambers and all that. Oh, no, no. I was cool. I, you know, nice to see. I always like to see people like that doing other kind of things. In the setting, because, you know, cause, you know it's, it's Canada in the wintertime, so there's all the snow. And I thought that oh, was no. Good. I like his early movies. That movie had a I, – I think I kind of liked they came from within a little better than Rabbit. Anyway, uh, yeah, sure so, yeah, there's that. And let's test this and get into Chuck. We shall do so.